Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Lore Lodge official podcast. Tonight, Sunday, 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 we have a showdown, more of a discussion and probably a lot of laughing at stupid people between me and Mini Minuteman, who's over here uh, on the other side of your screen. Uh, Milo, you want to say hi to the people? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Absolutely. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Milo. Uh, you may know me as Mini Minuteman. I am an archaeology uh, content creator on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, all those things. Uh, most recently, I have been doing a series uh, covering Ancient Apocalypse, which is the uh, Netflix documentary series by Graham Hancock, uh, analyzing his theory that there was a lost uh, world-conquering civilization at the end of the last Ice Age, um, which is going to be uh, one of the uh, jumping-off points of our discussion here tonight. So uh, I know that, you know, Aiden is uh, not familiar with the arguments I made. Other Aiden is familiar with the arguments I made. So we're going to just have a little bit of an open forum here and sort of, uh, you know, analyze some of his points, see if they hold any water and, uh, you know, kind of hear a little bit of a back and forth. Yep. That's, you know, I, I decided I would not watch uh, Milo's videos so that I could come into this not knowing his arguments. I figured that was fair. No hard feelings, um, Aiden. Yeah, I forgive it's, you. <laughs> I, I, will watch, I will watch them after this because I am genuinely curious to see your analysis. I, I know when, when it comes to, uh, you know, live format versus research format, there's always, you know, things that you remember to do when you're doing the live and not, or when you're doing the recorded and not so much when you remember to do the live. So, absolutely. Um, you know, it, last time I think we had you on, it was mainly, we were going to argue about the, the reality of like the Wendigo and skinwalkers and all of that. And then yeah. the whole mom thing derailed it. Um, <laughs> so oh, man. I for the, it, dude. that yeah. was like a year ago. Man, yeah. I'm, I'm glad we don't have to worry about that derailing oh, this my again. God. That was a nightmare. <laughs> she was a mess. Um, it seems <laughs> yeah. like she, she got banned and she's down to like 10,000 followers. So I'm, I'm all Let's good. Go. She still slanders me on Twitter, people. which is okay. <laughs> you know, she's dedicated. A credit where credit <laughs> is due. Good for her. I think she's just bored. <laughs> Um, I was actually very about a, about a month ago. I was uh, very close to her away, and I was like, "Do I do I stop by and like wave?" Oh like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you want to yeah. go for drinks? Like exactly. I'm here. Like, you know? want to talk? Maybe well um, me in person. Exactly. Yeah. Precisely. You get it. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, but I think we should probably give everybody who's not familiar with Ancient Apocalypse and Graham Hancock and all of that a, a quick little intro to what's going on here. Um, I don't know about you, but I was turned on to Graham Hancock around uh, 2020 during the pandemic, because what else do you do when you work a boring desk job <laughs> is you listen to Joe Rogan ad nauseum. And uh, eventually I came across Graham Hancock. He tickled that history part of my brain. This is long before this whole thing existed. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, he's uh, he basically has been since I think 1995 is when Fingerprints of the Gods was published. He's been pushing this hypothesis i'll call it um that there was a pre uh flood antediluvian is the the term civilization and this is ranged from you know something along the lines of early bronze age society which is kind of where i sit like if this existed it probably was an early bronze age society like level up through the people who say that they had flying cars graham to me seems to fall more on my side of things uh more on the but he does definitely like um i think he gets wrapped up with ancient aliens a lot too mm. which 
in my opinion, if, if I may add a little piece him. in there yeah, go for in it. Uh, context, which I think would be useful. Um, so uh, Hancock doesn't actually mention this in his series, but in his books, uh, he mentions that he believes that this civilization was at the technological development of pre-industrial England. Oh, um, so I didn't that's know about that, that part. He doesn't, I haven't read yeah, his books. So, <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't know. I do wonder if he didn't mention that in his most recent series because he no longer believes that or if because he thought that it was a little bit too extreme. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel like that's just an important piece to put out there because sure. it's not mentioned in his documentary. Anyway, as you were. Yeah, that, that's a good a good addition. Um, so for me, I found it interesting because when the evidence he presents, while I don't think it supports the conclusion that there was a near-industrial age society... I think he does make a compelling case that the sea level rose significantly and that when we start to find stuff like Gebekli Tepe uh, out in Turkey, that does start to rewrite the narrative a little bit. Um, so I'm curious as to your opinions on, on Gebekli Tepe. I think it's the best place to start because it's his most <clears throat> rational point, I think. <clears throat> you know, what we look at here is, and, and I'm not sure, he says that it was deliberately covered over. I'm not sure what the archaeological opinion on that is. Um, but it's essentially a ritual site that appears to be aligned with the position of the North Star across about a thousand years. And it was built around 11,600 AD. Now, all archaeological knowledge, as far as I learned in a history program, dates agriculture to 8,000 BC at the earliest, 10,000 years ago. So for something to be built 9,600 BC, it kind of, it turns the clock back a little bit. So when it comes to, you know, somebody who's, who's formally classically educated in archaeology, what's your opinion on that as far as, you know, could a megalithic structure have been built pre-agriculture? And if it was, then, then why is this the only one we found? Well, that's a, that's a phenomenal question. Uh, in, and I think that uh, one of the most important things that I, I think we need to address right off the bat is the idea that there is no argument that uh, Gebekli Tepe has completely rewritten the way that uh, archaeologists view uh, human history. Um, You know, I think that throughout a lot of Hancock series, he talks about, you know, it's like, this is making archaeologists challenge the way that they think, and they don't like that. Um, But in reality, the discovery of this site has very radically shifted the way that we think. Um, So for those of you who are uh, unfamiliar with the topic, um, previously, there uh, has been a very recognized correlation between uh, the rise of agriculture and the development of megalithic sites. Uh, This is uh, hypothesized to be due to the fact that when people are in the same place and they are, you know, producing their own food and not needing to travel for it, they have a lot more time and energy to spend on these large scale projects, which functionally don't serve any survival purpose. So seeing a site of this scale that requires this much energy uh, before having that uh, readily available food source is something which is very unusual in the archaeological record. Um, so it has changed the way that we think. Uh, however, the, there, there has been no reluctancy by the archaeo- uh, archaeological community to um, you know, accept this into the fold. Obviously, it challenges the way that we think, uh, but reluctancy has, has not been met with. Um, now, another part of this, which I believe is interesting, um, and, you know, you mentioned, like, this is uh, an outlier, like, there's kind of, like, a, a one-off sort of thing, uh, but as we talked about before we were starting the stream here, this is um, just the first, I think, is a better way to put it. Um, as uh, Hancock talks about in his series, uh, Karahan Tepe, which is another archaeological site very similar to Gebekli Tepe, uh, which dates back even farther. I believe it's dated to about 12,500 years old. So a, a site dating back another thousand years from the already ancient Gebekli Tepe site is, you know, uh, making us push this date even farther and farther back. Um, 
And the thing that I believe is probably the most interesting about this is the fact that, as Aiden, you uh, pointed out, there is no evidence uh, for, um, you know, agriculture at this point. Uh, even the hills and lands surrounding Gobekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe don't have any, any evidence of, like, workers' communities or uh, farmland, at least that has been discovered yet. That could be something that is uh, shown in the future. But as of right now, we don't have evidence for that. Um, and so it is fully believed, uh, as the uh, evidence stands right now, that this site was built by people who were functionally hunter-gatherers. Um, and I do think we need to temper ourselves when we talk about that term, because when I say hunter-gatherers, I'm sure many of your minds wander to, you know, it's like they were primitive, they couldn't really accomplish anything. Right. But we also have to keep in mind that this was people just over 10,000 years ago. And while that is a very long time in uh, human development and technological history, it's really not all that far as far as what we are functionally capable of. Uh, so these people would have been just as capable of lifting rocks up as the people who built the pyramids. Um, and the only difference was just whether or not they planted their crops or harvested them from the fields nearby. Um, so I do think it's a it's a really unique site, and it's one that I think we're going to be uh, continuing to learn a lot about. Oh, and the last thing, which I, I guess I just remembered that you mentioned, is the idea of an intentional burial. Um, now, that's uh, Gebekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe are actually going to be uh, two sites which I discuss in my upcoming episode, Analyzing Ancient Apocalypse. I haven't covered them yet. Um, but in that, he uh, postulates that it was intentionally buried as some sort of time capsule to warn us of the cataclysm that's coming. Um, there is currently no evidence that this site was intentionally buried. In fact, uh, quite the opposite. Um, it is believed that this is just a site that was sort of filled in over time. I mean, it's 12,800 years old. Something that has been sitting on a hilltop uh, for that amount of time would have uh, pretty rapidly changed. And another factor on top of that is the idea that the environment it is in has shifted a lot. Over the course of the past 12,000 years, um, the Earth's climate has shifted. Uh, you know, we always hear about the Fertile Crescent and, you know, think about Mesopotamia, but it's in a desert now. It's not the Fertile Crescent anymore. So we have to remind ourselves that the environments and the lands that these sites have in are in have changed over the past, well, 12,000 years. So. So what you're saying is there was a mud flood that covered up an ancient globe spanning empire, right? Okay. That's the only <laughs> rational explanation, Aiden. <laughs> I'm glad we're on the same page. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's yeah. Exactly so what I'm saying. that's that's definitely something that I've I've been curious about. It has been the the opinion of archaeologists in general regarding Gebekli Tepe and things like that. Because when I mentioned this on TikTok in mid 2021, um, and I will admit, I go back and I look at those videos and I'm like. I probably could have checked my facts a little <laughs> bit harder there. I did take Graham Hancock a little bit too much of his word. But I had a couple of archaeology accounts come after me really hard. Like, one guy lost, mm -hmm. like, a few, th like, a, I think it was, like, 10,000 followers because he was shitting on me. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, I think it was more because uh, he decided learn. to make I'm a nine-minute, he made, like, a nine-minute TikTok rant and got drunk while he did oh, it. Shit. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you who that was after the stream, but it, it did not go yeah, well for, for sure. him. Um, no, it doesn't sound looking, like it. <laughs> yeah, looking back, like, you know, okay, I, I definitely made, I, I said a few things that probably were maybe half correct. Um, mm. But, you know, looking back at it and you look at what, what Graham is saying, I, I think that he's on, I think he's one of those guys, like we talk about David Politis all the time with mm. Missing World One Phenomenon, where you've got these people mm -hmm. who they become like the biggest name in their field. And it seems like they have to push the most extreme version of whatever they're talking about in order for them to get people to actually care. You know, we found this with Aaron Hedges uh, from the, the Missing 401 Phenomenon. We're doing a video on him that's going to release this Friday. And there are a lot, there are a bunch of details left out of that story that mm -hmm. definitely make it seem a lot less paranormal and a lot more this guy was recovering from alcoholism and possibly also on benzodiazepines. Mm. Um, so, you know, I wonder how much that gets involved with Grant Hancock's stuff, 
Uh, but when you go to the root of what he's talking about with, you know, Gebekli Tepe being that old and this having to rewrite things, it was definitely surprising to me to hear you say that archaeology is not pushing back against it. Um, and maybe that is because I do follow the guy on Twitter, I will be honest. Uh, and when Ancient Apocalypse hit Netflix when it was announced, there were articles in The Guardian and in all sorts of other media blog posts from experts and things like that, basically talking about how this shouldn't be allowed on TV and this is dangerous. And, you know, I, the show hadn't come out yet. I don't know if they were allowed to see <clears> advanced screenings of it. But when I watched the show, there were a few things that I was like, eh, whatever, that seems a little a little shaky. But none of it came across as dangerous. So I guess I'm curious, mm -hmm. in your opinion, like, are, are those, were those hyperbolic people going and calling it dangerous? Or do you think that this is, you know, something that was kind of blown out of proportion? Or do you think that, that was legitimate fear? That's a, that's a really interesting question. I think that um, the, the using the word dangerous, I think, is very loaded because there's many things that that can imply, like what sort of danger. You know, it's a very uh, broad term. Um, but as far as this show goes, I can't speak for whether or not these people had early access to it. If they are speaking about it before it came out, I mean, that is up to, you know, whether or not you think that they should just be assuming what the content is going to be or whatnot. Um, but as far as labeling the show as dangerous, uh, the I, I don't know if I would go that far. But what I would say is I, I have labeled the show and I continue to. I think that it could be classed as predatory mm -hmm. because the way that it works is it is a sensationalized form of media that works to capitalize on the curiosity that everyone has but also works to undermine the scientific processes that actually inform those interests. And so by doing that, it honestly works a lot more to undermine the actual scientific theory and expertise that goes into understanding these sites and a lot less to actually inform further. Now, on the surface level, you're like, there are plenty of sites that you have probably only heard about for the first time by watching Ancient Apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And the same is for me. I'm a trained archaeologist, and it was the first time that I watched, uh, you know, a series that talked about... Um, uh, Gunung Padang or, you know, some of these other sites that are a lot less talked about. Um, and because of that, I do have some appreciation for the fact that they're able to bring those things into the limelight. But when you think about it, you learn a lot less about the sites themselves and more you learn that they exist and then sort of Hancock's theory about them. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a lot less of a like, here's this really unique site. Now, let me tell you all about it. And more of a here's this really unique site. And now the archaeologists are trying to lie to you. And here's the truth about it. So by doing that, I think that Hancock has a very... Um, I don't know if malicious is the right word, because I do think that Hancock does genuinely believe in the things that he's saying. Uh, but the way that he does it is is uh, structured in such a way that uh, throughout the course of the series, uh, not only does the theory get a little bit more outlandish, uh, but also his uh, attempt to vilify mainstream archaeology becomes more and more apparent uh, as the episodes go on. Um, his first episode, I was actually a really big fan of. It was the first time I'd heard mm -hmm. of Gunung Padang. I was like, this it is, is really very neat. interesting um, site. It is. It's really cool. Um, you know, there's obviously some errors with it where, you know, he talks about the idea that it could be 25,000 years old and that there was a sample dated. Uh, he doesn't reference how it was sampled, what was actually sampled. I talk about this in my video, Aiden, but uh, to recap for you, um, the he, he claims that this site could be 25,000 years old or something like that because of a uh, date that was taken from underneath it. Um, now, it's very possible that a 25,000 year old date was obtained, and I don't doubt it was. But as you are probably well aware, it was a, probably a radiocarbon date, mm -hmm. and that can be done using any natural material. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they found a cultural layer. And even if they did find a cultural layer, it doesn't mean that it is associated with the site which is now built on mm -hmm. top of it. Uh, that's something that we see in all kinds of places that have seen human habitation for long periods of time, is if someone built a camp 
fire on the ground, you know, thousands of years later, someone else probably also thought that was a pretty good spot and built their, uh, you know, temple there. Um, So I think that there are some errors like that. But in that first episode, I was kind of like optimistic. I was like, this is pretty good. Um, However, we get to episode four, where he talks about the Bimini Road, which isn't even an archaeological site. I talk about that in my most recent episode that came out. Um, And throughout the course of it, he uh, uses this language that uh, really works to just try and um, make you, it it works to make an other. And an other, in this case, uh, being, you know, mainstream archaeology and, you know, the academic community. Um, Because it makes it a lot more palatable to believe in the things Hancock is saying if he says that all of those who disagree with him are wrong and they are trying to lie to you. Mm -hmm. And then you're kind of like, well, I don't want to be one of them. And so then by the time the series ends, you're kind of like, well, I mean, he gave me like enough info. And also he ends with the final episode just talking about um, the Younger Dryas impact, Mm -hmm. which doesn't have any, I mean, his theory is not that there was a Younger Dryas impact. That's a whole thing separately. But because he ends with something that has scientific basis, the last taste in your mouth is, well, look, the scientists actually have supported it. Um, And so then he can kind of end on that note. Um, so I don't know if I would go as so far as to call it dangerous. I think that in some contexts, I would I would agree that it is. Um, but predatory, I think, is the word that I would use more. All right. Yeah. I, I, and and I would love to I, I'd love to get your thoughts on on some things about that, because with the mini road, that's one of the few things he's brought up that I've looked at it and been like, all right, I see where he's coming from. But what's the mm-hmm. point? And it does appear on the Piri Reyes map, um, which is a little odd. Uh, at least it a suggestion of it does. Um, and, you know, considering the time period, we just looked at a whole bunch of really old maps for our video on Roanoke. Uh, they're not mm-hmm. particularly accurate. They are astonishingly yeah. accurate for the time, but they're mm-hmm. not particularly accurate. <laughs> it's one of those things where you look at it and you're like, damn, that was really good for, for what they had available, but it does not stand up to modern scrutiny. So Bimini Road, to me, when I, when I look at it, I'll admit it does... It very much look like it's man-made and mm-hmm. it is not that deep so i'm curious what the archaeological reason to say that's not anthropological is yeah excellent question uh firstly uh something that i want to just revisit uh real quick is um you mentioned that the bimini road is present on the piri reese map this is something which i i talked about in my most recent episode um, but the Piri Reese map is one which is used for multiple uh, theories. Not only is it used for the idea of, you know, this lost Bimini Island, but also, uh, you know, an ice-free Antarctica. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much been used for anything that someone could point at it for. The ice-free Antarctica um, however, one is really weird, because at no point does it suggest that Antarctica is ice-free. It just suggests it's no. there. <laughs> Yeah. And also at the point of like Antarctica, there's a little uh, piece of writing on it, which says the part with all the snakes, uh, which to me sounds more like South America than Antarctica. But that was one thing, you know, if you look at it, it very much does look like he just drew Antarctica out to the or not Antarctica, as far as South America out to the right a little bit. Yeah. And, and that's part of what makes it so interesting. So uh, with all of these sort of, uh, you know, the old world is all sort of uh, n- north-south uh, yeah. orientation. But with the new world, it's a little bit changed where South America curves to the south uh, and North America, the north actually faces to the uh, to the west. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, uh, it has actually uh, positioned the island of Puerto Rico as being exactly where the Bimini Road is. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm sure that you guys, when doing your research on the Roanoke Islands, you know, you probably saw maps that showed roads on them. But I would be willing to bet that none of them showed the texture of the blocks that the road was made out of. No. Which brings me to my theory, which is that what the uh, Perry Reese map is showing is the island of Puerto Rico with its uh, mountain chain running down the middle of it. Uh, Puerto Rico is a very mountainous island, and, you know, this is an old map mm-hmm. showing topography. It would be the most uh, recognizable feature of an island of this size. 
Um, so when Hancock uses that claim, um, I, I personally thought it was incredibly foolish because not only uh, is this map far too zoomed out to show a road, uh, but also um, why would that be the only thing which is shown of you know the lost civilization of Atlantis? I feel like if I was trying to mark that on a map, I'd probably put something a little bit more um, grand. To which his I guess credit, to his credit, point. he does very explicitly mm -hmm. say, "I'm not saying the mini road is the lost city of Atlantis." I, I do want to give him credit there. Yes. He does not say. But, and I, I do I appreciate yeah. you, uh, you know, pointing that out. But, you know, the thing that he is implying and while I do appreciate him making those claims, uh, the thing that he is implying is that this is part of some lost, you know, like superstructure, essentially a road of this size would be leading to something pretty significant, which brings us to the next point of why it's not uh, anthropologically associated, uh, because there's nothing else around it. A road yeah. of this size would be leading to if this had been an island that is now sunken, this part, which is still sticking up, would be the highest point of the island. So you'd expect to find, right. well, pretty much anything there. Uh, he does point to a zoomorphic mound, a shell made in the shape of a shark, um, which is associated with the indigenous people of the area. Um, but I would be, you know, when I, uh, in my video, I talked about this and I think that it would be, uh, you know, the people who have the technological ability to build a road of this size and scale, the only other thing they would leave behind wouldn't be a pile of shells in yeah. the shape of a shark. Right. And that's not to say that that doesn't take, you know, technological advancement and cultural development, but they're just working on two different levels of, of scale and scope. Um, and so as far as the uh, rock itself, um, he very quickly at the beginning of the episode is like, um, you know, scientists will tell you it's beach rock, but it's not. Um, and he never actually goes on to define what beach rock is. He doesn't talk about it really at all. Uh, but beach rock is, uh, you know, in a calcium carbonate rich water of a um, tropical environment, uh, it will work to weld the sand grains together uh, through tidal action. And that's what makes beach rock. Uh, and because of this, we can identify uh, layers of sediment that have been uh, pretty much concreted uh, to create this beach rock. Um, and in the Bimini Road, uh, through core samples, they've been able to see that these uh, that the um, like layers of sand continue between the different blocks. So what you're looking at, instead of being multiple stones that have been rearranged, is one large slab that at one point cracked and broke and has slowly eroded into these multiple long rectangular slabs. Um, furthermore, in other places where there are beach rock, which happens through all sorts of tropical environments, we see similar patterns where rock of this uh, composition will break when exposed to the right conditions and create these about 10 to 15 foot long rectangular slabs. Gotcha. Yeah. It's definitely it's a sensible explanation for the shark, absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> as, as far as the, the mini road part goes... One thing he points out are the stones underneath it that appear to be propping it up so that it's level. Um, what, kind of like mm -hmm. a subgrade? What? Kind of like a subgrade? If I knew what that term meant, I could give you an appropriate answer. <laughs> okay, so subgrade is essentially what they put underneath modern roadways that is essentially made out of gravel and other small, loose material that they compact before uh, putting the road yes. surface So down. it's not quite that sophisticated. It's okay. more like they took a number of... Uh, smaller rocks mm -hmm. and wedged the large rocks up under them. Got it. Um, but that does that does appear to suggest human activity to me. I'm mm -hmm. curious what your thoughts yeah. are on that part. <clears throat> and that's a great point. And I do think that that's a lot of the reason why people um, will associate this site with some sort of human activity. And I'm actually really glad you brought this up because it's something which I actually didn't go into in my video. So here's a little exclusive content. So, um, you know, when, when you think about... Um, Think think of the environment where the Bimini Road has sort of arisen. It's in a tropical environment. It is formed by the, uh, you know, uh, com composite pressure of the water and the, um, you know, uh, binding through the calcium carbonate, which is in it. Um, and through this tidal action, it is constantly moving sand. 
Um, now, when these massive slabs of stone are slowly eroded into the water, they are going to sink as that very fine sand is washed out from underneath them. Uh, but as this sand is washed out from underneath them, larger pieces of stone are going to be left behind, especially because they now have the pressure of this enormous slab of rock on top of them. So another thing that you have to keep in mind here is that this environment has been subject to stone creation like this since time immemorial. It has been creating beach rock, which has come out of the water, cracked, broke, eroded, fallen away, and turned into you know sand again, or just these small pebbles. So the um, strata of this area is made out of fragments of this very rock. And so because of that, I think that to assume that there wouldn't be stones underneath a slab of this size would be um, sort of uh, to, to ignore the, um, I guess, geologic history of this area. So while those um, sort of bowling ball shaped rocks that he points out are stuck underneath those stones, the reason that those are stuck under there is purely because all of the sand that is around them has been washed away. And those things are now pressed between all well, a rock and a hard place and they can't get washed any farther. Um, and so to me, while it does look like, um, you know, sort of that substrate as uh, uh, Aiden Mark II uh, pointed out, um, you know, I, I think that it suggests more of just sort of the geologic history of the area and only further goes on to support the idea that this is a slab of beach rock. So I, this is one thing I do feel I have to press you on. Sorry, but Please, no, press it, away. Is, it is the for. one part that I was really like, okay, yeah, you're really, I'm, I'm lost on it. Because my, my way of doing things is I always try to disprove my opinion. So if Dude, I go Aiden, into this, yeah, for, man, okay. bring it. if I go into this and I'm like, man, that there's got to be a rational ex, uh, this there's no way there's a rational explanation. I try to find it. That's how I do my research. Absolutely, as you these should. stones, these stones really are like if you look at them, and I, I mean, maybe I can, maybe I can pull them up for you uh, if you want. Probably, yeah. Yeah, probably can if you want to. You know, I, we obviously can't switch sides. Yeah, here, if but, I had my laptop in front yeah, of me, I, I would uh, search it. But if you can, if you can pop some of them to me, I'll have a look. Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pop them up on the stream if you've got that loaded up. If you share through, I'm, I am gonna do that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so if you've got the stream up, if you can see it, um, then I'm gonna try and not cover your. I'm face. rolling with just my phone here at the gotcha. moment, so yeah. I may need it on the yeah. It is on the stream right now. Um, so mm. if you look at it, there's you know oh. what what six oh oh boy where'd you go there you are um, oh boy I'm back I'm back the call so he can see it what I'm not bringing it to the call yeah. I'm putting it on the screen so the people who are watching can see it. Yeah, what I'm saying is if you make oh, it full screen okay. over there, you can bring it to the call. Everybody can see it. If I make it full screen Whoa. over there. What? what? If I do what? Make this tab full screen over there and then share your screen in Discord. We're learning. Yes. Fancy. Damn. Um, this is some advanced shit. Is this going to let us do this? Whoa. Whoa. And then full screen here. Ton of a bitch. Yo. This is awesome. All right. Uh, and uh, it says swap your application to continue. Awesome. So again, Yo. Okay. It, okay. Yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah. is so it up now? Can you guys see it? Okay. Cool. Uh, loud and clear. Yeah. So so I'm looking at a bunch of these. It's it's really primarily this one um, and the ones like it. Those do look very much like sculpted pieces of stone that are sitting and i am not saying this to tell you that you're wrong i am oh, genuinely no, all, curious as to how this happens but if you look at it um oh my god oh wow that's even different oh my gosh you know these these to me especially when you look at it and you see that there's you know and ignore this thing over here i don't know what that is but if you look at some of these pictures of what is actually bimini road this one particularly it does look like there's just open sand on the other two sides you know Mm -hmm. So I'm yeah, curious. So 
how does how does the beach rock example work with that? That's that's a phenomenal question. So I think that I, I want to uh, bring you back to the beginning of this question you asked because you used my 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 favorite uh, combination of words of all time, <laughs> which is that it looks like, yeah. um, and that's something that uh, is is uh, a hallmark of a lot of the sort of arguments that I kind of go toe to toe with throughout my series, where something looks like something else, and therefore that is enough evidence to mm -hmm. prove that it is the other thing. Um, so uh, you know, if I'm I can totally agree with you, it looks like a road. I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah. Um, but you know, when you 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 have to take into account more of the um, actual like structural environment where something like this would form. Now, it is a very good point. You point out that there's this very uh, straight horizontal uh, line that is you know between the sand and the rocks themselves. Um, and, you know, that is a very, like, sort of unusual-looking feature to see in nature. Um, but anyone who tells you that, like, straight lines as a whole won't appear is uh, lying to you. I'm sure you okay. could probably look at... Um, I, I Obviously, I don't have the access to pull the images up here. Uh, but you've seen, you know, coastal areas that have been eroded where there you can see the shear of the rock. Mm -hmm. um, and in an environment like this where you're creating a sandstone... Um, that is welded together with calcium carbonate, you're going to have that water erosion. And if you have a slab which has been um, pushed out of the water through whatever um, forces, and you have one side of it that is constantly being washed, when it does eventually drop down into the water, it's going to leave behind that very soft side uh, in the sand. Now, another piece uh, here that I think is um, also worth noting is the fact that it is a pretty close-up angle, so I can't really tell much of the context around it, so this is mostly me sort of postulating a theory. Um, so this is an unresearched sort of, uh, you know, geologist interpretation here. Um, but yeah, and, and you are right. Those, those rectangular uh, slabs do look very uh, man-made, if you want to pull up uh, another image there. Yeah, so another thing, I guess, you know, that's worth noting is, you know, you see this, uh, this sort of slope that it, it, it follows as it goes down um, and follows the topography. Um, now, through that slope, I know I mentioned to you guys that there is sort of a, um, a gradient where the sand grains sort of uh, proceed downwards. Mm -hmm. uh, throughout all of those stones, as they proceed down towards deeper water, the um, uh, strata of rock uh, remains consistent uh, as if it were, you know, sand falling off into deeper water. Um, so, you know, even though it does look like, you know, a road going up a hill, it is uh, really just rocks that have fallen onto the bottom of a sloping uh, piece of water, mm -hmm. or I guess body of water. Gotcha. All right. Yeah. All right. I'll take it. I'll, I'll consider it. Um, it does <laughs> yeah, lead we'll me into another question, though. And and this is something that uh, that was brought up specifically by by one of my mods because we were having a discussion about this. Um, the sea level rise that Graham Hancock Ooh. mentions is yes. one of, one of the most important things about all this. I looked I looked into it. I read some graphs. Um, I am no scientist, but I can read a graph. <laughs> Uh, and I can ask Google to do math for me. So what yes. I found was that uh, according to, uh, there's, uh, of course, the Younger Dryas and Meltwater Pulse 1B and all of this, there's the mm. impact theory for the Younger Dryas, which does seem pretty compelling that there was a comet impact 12,800 mm. years ago. That that one, to my understanding, is not really debated anymore. Um, yeah, that, that's, there's a, the there's part. a KT boundary, like, we, like it, it looks the same way as the, the meteor impact that killed the dinosaurs. Um, yes. So that one, to my understanding, that was 2007. That was that. That's kind of just accepted now. And then I found I, I went to Penn State, um, and and I found uh, some something from Penn State. They their their article suggests that sea levels have risen about 130 meters, which for those who use freedom units is 426 feet, um, in the last 20,000 years, and that uh, between 15,000 and 14,000 years ago, uh, meltwater pulse one A 
that that went up by about 20 meters, about 20 meters of that mm -hmm. 130 is during that period. Uh, and then 11,600 years ago, we get, well, Meltwater Pulse 1B. And the big one. Yeah, the big one. And that raises sea levels from about 80 meters below where they are today down uh, to about 20 below where they are today. So that's over the course of about a thousand years um mm -hmm. with you know and of course there's i've seen people online who are like they'll they'll take that younger dryas and that end date and meltwater pulse 1b and say oh well if you average out all of the sea level rise between meltwater pulse 1b and today then it's a very small amount it's a very small number but if you look mm -hmm. at the the graph of sea level rise as they used i i this one that i looked at had it used coral samples it used the sea level of barbados greenland ice cores and then uh one other thing that I can't totally recall. But what it suggested was that I... Uh, oh, and that was the wrong page. What it suggested was that uh, during the Younger Dryas period, 20 meters of that remaining sea level rise occurred during the first 500 years. And if I went through the ice cores again, and what that suggested was that there was a rise of about 60 meters during the Meltwater Pulse 1B, with about 25 of those occurring, uh, 25 of those meters occurring in just a few decades to a century, which would have been about 25 centimeters of sea level rise per year before it slows considerably. And that came from On the Hemisphere Origins of Meltwater Pulse 1A by William Richard uh, Peltier of the University of Toronto. And that was published in Quaternary Science Reviews 2005. So mm. unless I am misreading the graph, it, it suggests to me that there was a very large sea level rise event that was then followed by a much more gradual continuing sea level rise until you get closer to where we are today around 6,000 years ago, 6,000 BC. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. No, um, Aiden, I, you're, you're spot on. Again, this is one of those things where it's like the, um, you know, uh, the, the younger Dryas is one of those things that it is a very well like researched part of our climatic history. Um, and so like there, there's a ton of information on it. I, if I may, you know, add a couple extra yeah, pieces. Oh, sweet. There we go. Um, you know, I, I can't remember all the numbers exactly off the top of my head. I know you have your, your paper there. Um, but in my video, you know, I talk about that as well because um, something that is, is pivotal to Hancock's hypothesis is this idea of rapid sea level rise. Um, you know, he, he, he describes it almost as if it was, you know, these places were washed away, um, you know, by the, you know, the monsoon floods and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and I think that we need to uh, temper ourselves and think about the rapidity at which this uh, event happened. Um, you know, in some of my uh, research on this, which I talk about in my video, uh, at the maximum during the uh, Meltwater Pulse uh, 1B, sea levels are rising at about 1.4 inches per year, um, which I think puts it into a lot more uh, perspective as far as what we could perceive on a human uh, lifespan. Mm -hmm. So over the, you know, 1.4 inches in a year is a fucking lot. Mm -hmm. Like if you live in the same place for a lifetime, you will notice that stuff is underwater by the time you are an adult. And that is, you know, something which people around the world would have experienced. There is absolutely no doubting that. I mean, we're a species that loves to build our home in low lying areas. And so um, a lot of people would have been impacted by this. Now, I think that um, when Hancock sort of talks about this theory, I do think that he doesn't do his due diligence in explaining, as you just did, uh, you know, the actual uh, speed at which this sea level was happening. Mm -hmm. You know, he talks about it as if it was, you know, a biblical scale event where suddenly the waters just rose. And, you know, if you didn't make it to the top of the mountain, well, you're just sort of mm -hmm. fucked. Um, and so, you know, 500 years is a long time. And if a majority of that, um, you know, sea level change did happen over the course of that time, as it sounds like this paper, um, 
you know, is is confirming. Um, you still have to keep in mind that this would be the difference of, you know, that amount of sea level rise happening between us and like the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. So it's a very long time. But think about how distant those people are to us. You know, I, I can only trace my like ancestors back by a course of Jesus. I don't know. You know, maybe like 100, 200 years, yeah, 200 maybe years. like. And after that, it's like I, I am, I, you know, I'm in over my head. So, you know, um, it is it is very true that, you know, these people would have uh, experienced uh, a rapid environmental change of this uh, size and scale. Uh, but I think it's important that we temper uh, really the, the the perception that people would have had of this event as it was occurring. Gotcha. Yeah. So I yeah. Mean, when, when I look at that that number and I think back to the Bronze Age collapse and the fact that we had a I mean, 1177 is kind of the the year that it all completely falls apart, uh, if you Mm -hmm. you follow the same scholars I do. But if you look at, you know, the the process, it took about about 100 years for the Bronze Age civilizations to realize they were in trouble, go through that trouble, and then you see basically every empire except for Egypt collapses completely. Um, Mm -hmm. And if you think about the level of technology we had then, and where our cities were built... I wonder if, you know, dial it back a few thousand years and Egypt is undergoing situations where if they build too close to the Nile, they get set back a dozen years because Mm -hmm. they've just been completely wiped away. Um, So when you look at the the Graham-Hancock argument at its core, what it really is, is the same one I make a lot of the time, which is there is enough evidence that we could suggest that maybe back 11,600 years and earlier, there was a, a beginnings of a civilization. Mm-hmm. Maybe not, maybe not Mycenaean Greece, maybe not Middle Kingdom Egypt, but something that started to resemble those, you know, Sumer. I wonder, had they built on the coastlines, if these were people who had built, you know, where Phoenicia stood, or I guess mm-hmm. 50 miles west of where Phoenicia stood, do you think there's a possibility that we were actually getting ahead, that we were getting to the point of, you know what, maybe we're going to, we're like with Gebekli Tepe, where there's not quite writing, but there's pictographs. Do you think there was a, that we were maybe at the point where we were just about to get there? Is there any possibility that we could have been pushed back by those rising sea levels that maybe they wouldn't have wiped out civilization? It would have been a massive cataclysmic flood where everybody died. But... Mm-hmm. That, they were getting swallowed up year after year and they were still so early into the process of agriculture that maybe they couldn't move appropriately. I would say that that is a hypothesis that I would absolutely think there is foundation to, because again, as we've talked about before, like humans love to live along the shore. That's just the thing that we like to do. Mm -hmm. And so I think that having, uh, you know, this sea level rise probably wouldn't have been, you know, the cataclysmic event as it's sort of postulated in ancient apocalypse. But, you know, it would be more of like, a, well, damn it, now everything is underwater. So we just have to keep moving that way. And like, you know, you up everything and you just keep going inland. And all of these sites that would have been built along the water while the sea level was fairly consistent would have been covered eventually, you know, it wouldn't have been over the course of an afternoon or a year, it would have been over the course of, you know, 100, 500 to 1000 years before right. it's all actually underwater. Um, and that's actually a topic that I'm really interested in. And I talk about a little bit in um, my analysis of ancient apocalypse, uh, because underwater archaeology is, in my opinion, one of the most important parts of archaeology and is something that is not done nearly enough. Uh, so I'm from, uh, you know, I went to school up in Maine. And so because of that, I'm pretty familiar with the archaeological sites up there. Uh, and there's this great uh, site called the uh, Blue Hill Bay off of uh, Acadia National Park. 
where uh, they found these two uh, underwater hills uh, that have evidence of paleo-indigenous uh, activity, um, and they're both completely sunken. There's, they found bifaces, they found tools, they found all kinds of stuff there. Uh, there's another one, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it's another island, which or was an island farther off of Maine, um, and now it's a seamount, but they have um, done uh, archaeological excavations on and have found evidence that indigenous people would uh, row their like canoes out to the island and go uh, caribou hunting back when caribou still lived down here. Um, and so they have like, you know, they found fire pits, they found the tools, they found kill sites uh, on, you know, what is now a seamount. Um, and so I think that that's a really important part of our history that has been lost. And honestly, it was my favorite part of Hancock's series, because he actually brings attention to the fact that uh, our underwater archaeology holds the keys to our oldest evidence of civilization. Um, you know, and you can postulate this even farther back. Uh, you know, look at uh, the Sahara. The Sahara used to be green, as I'm sure you are aware, you know, and it used to be a lush jungle. It used to be a grassland. It's where we got our roots. It's where we began to fucking walk on two legs and right. shit. And so, you know, you look at all of these ancient, you know, river basins, um, and it makes you think this place would have been lush about 6,000 years ago. So what is lost underneath the sands? Mm -hmm. What is at was once a river delta, but is now just, you know, a sandy dune that leads out to the ocean? So there are parts of our history which are absolutely locked in these places which have gone through massive climatic changes. Um, and I think, you know, it's something that in, in my personal, um, you know, career going forward, I would love to look into more because I do think that even if it's not to the extent that Hancock talks about, it's something that I would meet him in the middle on and say, like, I want to know more about this mm -hmm. because who knows, maybe he is fucking right, but we're not yeah. going to know if we don't look down there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. I, and you look at like even some of the places in, in the Mediterranean, there are villages that were submerged. 500 to a thousand yeah. years ago that were fully functional and then just over time flooding just made them uninhabitable yeah, there's and like now they're Roman site 20, like 20 to 50 under. feet under the water um you know mm -hmm. in, in the mediterranean and then of course you know the, there's dogger land of course up in uh the, mm -hmm. the area between great britain and denmark there was an entire landmass there that is now below yeah. water and we keep finding stone age material that suggests this was not underwater all that long ago like it, it was definitely a yeah. while ago but it was not 150 100,000 500,000 years it was within yeah. human existence and the I, I mean i think what the the earliest uh modern homo sapiens sapiens are dated to what 300,000 years yeah about 250 yeah so it's you know we we've been a lot around a long time we yeah. only really started getting to where we are at most like the beginnings of agriculture and civilization you can imagine we probably figured out how to domesticate animals and how to, at the very least, you know, get grain to grow in the same spot every year. Probably mm. that we probably were starting to see that happening like 15,000 years ago that people were starting to look into Cause we know that by 10,000 years, we're domesticating the dog. So yes. there yeah. must've, they must've had an idea a, that symbiotic dog domestication going back. Like, I think like, 3,000 years dogs have been with us for yeah. fucking ever dude yeah it's it's crazy hell yeah and like Archie. you know that that's really come here. <laughs> come here come come say hi to the street come on, come on bro. appearance come show on. us the dog there we show go, us the yes this was a wolf Let's at go. one point <laughs> yeah wow <laughs> a very 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 long time ago this was a wolf yeah a ferocious beast yeah. he he's maintained the uh the physical shape Lost mm -hmm. a lot of the size and I, ferocity. I gotta say, the, the stance, he really has the stance oh, down. Yeah. That's a majestic pose. Nose yeah, into the wind. You, you wanna give us the tail? You know? Here we go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> He's a very good The boy is, is so, a you know, true showman. Mm -hmm. he <laughs> he, yeah, he knew. When, when we said, you know, you have to come show off, he, he knew the assignment. Oh, he knew. He knew what he was doing. He's a 
he's, he's a very, very intelligent little guy sometimes. Yeah. Most of the time, not really. He still hasn't figured out drinking water. He's about four years old. We'll get there eventually. Um, we have our moments. You exactly. Know? Yeah. You know, Water's a challenge. It's tough, learning. you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, okay, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad we're, we're in agreement on that. But at the very least, this is all intriguing. And it's something that we should be looking cool. into. Absolutely. And honestly, one of my, you know, I, I still haven't gone on to do my like, you know, a PhD or a master's or anything like that. So I officially haven't like declared any specific part of archaeology. Um, but the one that I'm the most interested in is, um, you know, like the the prehistoric archaeology, anything pre 10,000 years ago, mm-hmm. um, because it's something which is really close to us in the grand scheme of things. But it's still beyond that that curtain of history where we don't have anything written down about it. And so it's entirely up to us to piece together all of the pieces that we have at our disposal. And I think that's part of the reason why I was so, you know, interested in Hancock's, you know, um, uh, documentary series, not only because I knew I was going to be able to make a video about it, but because I'm like, this is, you know, a topic that is something that I'm really interested about. Um, and so, you know, seeing Hancock sort of combine these things, which a prehistoric archaeologist is all over, like the idea that we need to do underwater archaeology and stuff like that, mm-hmm. with sort of this, uh, you know, pseudo mystical, like they're leaving messages for us written in the stones. It's like, you're so like, the, the thing that I, uh, I don't remember the exact words I used, but it was like, Hancock is like, he, he keeps being like, okay, I'm with him, I'm with him, I'm with him, I'm with him. And then he just goes fucking like completely off the charts. I'm like, whoa, you lost me at the end. Like, we need to do more underwater archaeology? Yes. Climatic environmental shift has changed the way that humans have existed throughout time? Absolutely. They left us written and coded messages in the stars so that when we go through a comet field that we will know? Okay, well, you're, you lost me on that last part. Yeah. So it, it was really interesting watching him be like almost logical and then suddenly just fly off the rails at the end. Yeah, it, it seems <laughs> but, like what he's done is really taken the root of like describing what is known and then he is trying to jump to the end and, and find the, the thing that's there. And I just don't think there's enough evidence quite yet. I think he's, you're spot on. I think he's on to something. I think that these are definitely things that should be investigated, but... When he tries to jump to those conclusions, I, I know that in order to, he's, he's a journalist, in order to write a book, a story, a documentary, they want you to have a start and an end. Yes. We're not at the end yet. I don't think we're there. You are spot on, especially at this point in history. And I think that you actually touch on something really important there, which is that Hancock has this very skewed perception, at least he seems to have this very skewed perception of what the archaeological record completion is actually like uh, throughout his series he you know postulates the idea he's like um you know it, it, how are we supposed to believe that people just woke up one morning and decided to build this when talking about gebekli tepe gigantia karahan tepe all these like really ancient sites that are the oldest of their kind and i think he is doing that to sort of sensationalize it further but i also have to wonder like do you really think that this is the oldest because it isn't i mean we found gebekli tepe and then we found karahan tepe and we're going to find something older so what really fascinates me about the way that he thinks and the way he structures his argument is he treats his hypothesis as if we have all the information mm-hmm. and we don't. We have a fucking infinitesimal amount of the information. Yeah. We have so little that if you were trying to postulate this idea of a global world's, you know, a ruling civilization, you would not have enough pieces to be able to do it, even if it did exist. And so it really fascinates me to see how it's like you're so close to being like this is a really interesting piece of history that we need to learn more about but he's also treating it as if he has all the pieces in front of him and he's trying to put them together when he only has like you know point zero zero one percent of the pieces and it's it's pretty it's yeah. very unusual <laughs> well it's also an interesting trajectory because 
you know, in these instances where we don't have a lot of the information, when you're asking that question of who woke up and decided to do this one yeah. day, imagine asking that about Rome or Manhattan. Well, I mean, somebody did and had to go for her. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a great point. But wait, real quick, while we're still on yeah. the subject of ancient apocalypse, there is one thing that, Milo, I would love for you to touch on with Aiden, Please. which was in relation to your coverage of the Malta doorways element, because I think that was my what I oh, found yeah. most entertaining uh, in the second episode. So I'd, I'd love for you guys to discuss that for a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I okay, I... The, the doorway, the, the thing with, uh, knowing literally nothing else about that, um, it struck me as interesting, uh, but also not entirely odd. You know, I, I mm-hmm. think the odd part is when it was built, not that it was built. Um, mm-hmm. But also, it, it feels to me far less weird than looking at Gobekli Tepe, because that's, that's 11,600 years. At Malta, it's just previously we didn't really think that there were people there, and it turns out there actually may have been. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So uh, to me, that one doesn't feel that odd. It's just like, oh, well, now we have evidence that people were here earlier than we thought they were. But it's so far removed from Quebecle Tepe that we cannot feasibly be talking about the same civilization. You're absolutely right. And your intuition is spot on there, uh, Aiden, because it, it definitely is a lot less of a confusing explanation than any of the other sites so you know uh he he talks about how all of these doorways face towards the star sirius and that like every time sirius would wander across the sky they'd build a new temple now first and foremost if you are building a temple with doorway that's big enough for a person to walk through it how are you going to aim that doorway at a star like think about if you're standing in that doorway think about how many stars you can see through the doorway Mm -hmm. so there's so many stars through it that i don't firmly believe that you could actually do that um i mentioned in my video i'm like if you have a, a hole that's like through the wall and like on the summer solstice you know sirius rises through it then i'd be like okay that's precise mm-hmm. enough that you can prove that it is serious but when you're talking about a pinprick in the sky that's a hard one to prove now the other thing that happens in that direction all of this uh doorways face to the um southeast yeah. uh, which is where the sun rises from so i think it's a lot more likely that when you're building a you know a stone uh you know citadel where there's you know like giant stone blocks mm-hmm. on all sides and you need light inside of it you have the doorway oriented towards the place where the sun comes up mm-hmm. um and you know he also uh, shows recreations which i don't think that they I, i'm not well versed in it enough but i think he showed them as accurate as they can be uh, which shows the um gigantia and other temples on malta having an open roof uh, so by the time the sun is up in the sky you have sunlight shining down through the roof but when the sun is still low on the horizon you need some other way to be able to get light into it and so you just have your doorway facing towards where the sun comes up and boom so that's like one of those things where I'm like, your theory, his theory like makes sense on paper when you just hear him talk about it. But if you take like any other like logical explanation to account, I'm like, like pointing at Sirius to warn us that they we're going to go through a mm-hmm. comet trail. Like, come on. Yeah, I don't that, know. It just seems like that too reasoning, far of a leap. That reasoning was a little yeah. weird. I could understand if it were facing the sun at the summer solstice. Like that wouldn't surprise me at yeah, all. Yeah, totally. Um, totally. You know, because obviously the sun's going to rise in much the same place every day. But you yeah. tend to kind of ancient cultures do this, um, and we look at you know mm-hmm. this, we've got this in Britain, we've got this in Mesopotamia, India, China, like Polynesia. There's people counting where the sun is all throughout history. I don't think that it necessarily implies yeah. any sort of warning about one specific event um also the, the likelihood that they would have even been able to remotely understand that um yeah i I, can, <laughs> yeah. I continue to be of the belief that the origin of the story of ragnarok uh in in norse paganism might come from that younger dryas in fact 
that it might really because what well what they describe in ragnarok if you go into the the nitty-gritty of the details obviously all of this is caused by the gods fighting each other and all that Mm -hmm. but what they describe is that there is a uh a a global fire that one of the, Mm. the giants sets the world on fire and then that fire is quenched by a global flood and if you think about what that might sound like if an asteroid were to hit greenland that's probably exactly how it would look uh, to people living yeah, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. So, you know, we, I, I think we've definitely maintained a lot of these stories. And if you look at how the, the flood story changes based on where in the world you are in relation to that alleged comet strike, it actually does make a lot of sense. Um, hmm. You know, where the cert, like if you look at the details of the different stories, the further north you are, the more cataclysmic it is, the more there's an involvement of fire. Whereas the further south you are, the more it's about the flooding um so just one thing that i found interesting about that entire that entire episode Mm. that that concept um but that does bring i think us to that final point that i really wanted to talk about which is when you're looking at the the ancient world and things that we don't totally understand obviously we're missing a lot i think that what gebekli tepe says to us is not you know people decided one day to wake up and build this but rather that we're missing the evidence of those people that you know Mm -hmm. they were up to something they were doing something out there but we just haven't figured it out yet and if you look at the other tepi sites that kind of ring around it we probably we probably can figure out sort of what was going on Mm -hmm. it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of digging in a long while before we find any concrete evidence that tells us something to the extent that you know the the clovis culture finds did and of course Mm -hmm. now that's been dialed back so yeah, I, I yeah. will say I, I have to agree with him on one specific point, and that stuff really does keep getting older. <laughs> he yeah, says that all yeah, the time. No, whenever you say you found the oldest thing, you have not found the oldest yeah. thing. It's horseshit. It's just the oldest thing <laughs> we're currently aware so of. Far. Yeah, yeah, the oldest thing you have found. <laughs> yeah. I did think he made an interesting point about Darren Kuyu, uh, but we also did a video on that, and I could find very little evidence of anybody pre-Hittite culture being there. Um, Mm -hmm. and of course he says, well, just because the oldest cultural artifacts we have are from this, you know, the only way I see that, that tunnel system being older than the Hittites is if we end up finding something else somewhere else that we're like, oh wait, this isn't a random fragment of rock. This isn't a naturally occurring formation. This is something that we found across an area that implies human activity, Mm -hmm. but we don't have that yet. Uh, so, you know. It seems that, and of course, we didn't know the Hittites were there either until the uh, yeah. sometime in the late 1800s. At first, it was thought it may have been the Phrygians, and they thought that mm-hmm. the, uh, the the Bible was just kind of saying there was this group of people up there, and they didn't actually exist, or they were just another tribe of Canaanites. And of course, then it turned out that the Jews recorded that. Uh, and they were like, mm-hmm. yeah, there's this really <laughs> violent empire up there. Just avoid that. <laughs> Don't go through those mountains. Yeah. Take a detour. <laughs> yeah, so they turned out to be right. Um but, you know, we, we didn't know about that. When it was first uncovered in, I think, the 1800s, uh, that they started finding Hittite artifacts, they just thought that they were, like, Phrygian or Assyrian or something like that. Turned out it was an entire culture. Mm. And then, sometimes, you you get a little bit more silly and goofy, and you say that uh, the, the Chicago World's Fair was built by the Tartarians. So... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know exactly how much you know about this conspiracy, but it's been brought up a number of times. And if anybody in the the chat knows of someone who is a a Tartaria truther that wants to come on this show and argue with me about it, I will happily do so. I have been trying. 
I have said it a number of times. Nobody has emailed me. The email is very public. <laughs> you can find it. There's the lorelogicgmail.com and there is aiden.mattis at lstagency.com. Both of those will get to me. If you're a Tartaria truther who wants to speak to this show and come on here and use our platform, we will argue with you. We will happily do it. Um, <laughs> but to my understanding, this whole theory originated as the belief that there was, up until sometime in the 1800s, a very, very powerful kingdom known as uh, Great Tartary or Grand Tartaria, depending on what country the map you're reading is from which existed in what would today be known as Eurasia. And that sometime in the 1800s, it was destroyed, dismantled, and the entire world agreed somehow, we've never done this before for anything, the entire world agreed to not talk about it and get rid of all evidence that it existed except for where it's on all of the maps. And then it kind of, it grows from there, and you'll find people are like, yes, all that's well and good, but in reality... It wasn't destroyed by empires. It was a mud flood, a, a global mud flood that covered everything. And then even, even further, there are people who will say that uh, Tartaria was a globe-spanning empire with advanced technology and that uh, that's the reason we can't build anything like it anymore. You know, like, I don't know, uh, the Roman Pantheon. You know, if only we had built something like yeah, the we, U.S. Uh, Capitol building, which had the exact same architectural style. Oh. We can't do it. We didn't do that. That was Tartaria. Exactly. So come I, on, Aiden, get with it. You know, I'm I'm curious if you've have you encountered those people in your content because they pop up so, on mine. <laughs> you know, Aiden, I'm going to be totally honest with you. Uh, the 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 times I have encountered this has been uh, not knowing that I'm actually encountering it. Mm -hmm. I've seen people talk about the Chicago World's Fair and like weird conspiracies around it, but I just never understood what the fuck they were talking about because frankly, the conspiracy is so confusing that yep. I just don't understand it. It started as some weird like Russian nationalist thing in like mm -hmm. the 1800s about yep. like their lost homeland or something mm -hmm. like that. And then it slowly devolved into this idea that like, you know what, it, 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 this empire existed or like the traces of this empire were wiped away as recently as like the 1960s, right? Mm -hmm. yep. Or allegedly. There, there's there's so, 1960s, there's 1890s, there's 1850s. They can't even decide. <laughs> they can't even agree on when it disappeared. So am I so understanding this correctly? Where, is, like, is Putin invading Ukraine to revitalize the Tartarian Empire? Is that what I'm hearing? Right you know now? what? If that was Putin's aim, I would respect it a lot more. <laughs> like, yeah, fucking go for it. You know what? At least that is a legitimate piece of psychosis. <laughs> Instead of just, yeah, yeah, that's we a want good these reason to institutionalize <laughs> someone. <laughs> yeah, oh. yeah. The so the, the the closest I have strayed into that uh, quagmire is the um, the mud flood theory. So mm -hmm. actually, my very first video on YouTube was uh, about a guy who was doing a whole mud flood thing, and I went through it and I broke down all his points. And I I think the reason that video honestly was kind of an inspiration for me to kind of um, like stray away from I guess what can only be described as just the fucking batshit insane conspiracies where it's like there's not even like any evidence for this like it's just saying something and then because you're saying it it's true like right. one thing i will give hancock day in and day out whether or not i agree with him he made a whole ass series trying to back up his claim yep. and he had evidence even if i can you know fight it he's like he gave evidence he's written books on it like this guy believes what he believes and he's actually trying to prove it and i have a lot of respect for that because that's the way science works is you challenge each other mm -hmm. that's the whole point of it 
But then you get people who do this weird mud flood shit where they're like, you know, why are all these buildings in San Francisco built on a hill? Like, humans have never built on hills. This is what the guy said in the video that I reviewed. And I was like, I literally live like place 10 we minutes build. away from a hill that's, <laughs> yeah, like, I literally live like next to a hill that's so steep that I would walk my fucking bike up as a kid because, like, I just couldn't get up it. It's so goddamn steep. Mm -hmm. And it's like, there's houses built all the way up it. Were these Tartarians or was this just some dude outside of Boston who was like, yeah, I'm going to build a house on here. Yep. Like, I, it makes literally no sense. And it's to the point where it's like, do I even waste my breath trying to debunk this? Because it's just insane. And anyone who believes it is clearly not going to take any evidence because mm -hmm. the evidence is all around you. Yep. And, and again, the stuff like we just figured out how to do Roman concrete again. Like, mm -hmm. like yeah, there's mm -hmm. lost technologies that it took us a while to figure out. Now, was our concrete worse than roman concrete not really necessarily we were doing just fine with it but it's cool yeah. that we figured that one out um that we were like ah that's how they did this two thousand years ago <laughs> um, yeah but you know when you get into and and what strikes me with these people often is how intense their uh their their detest for academia is like i am by no means the biggest fan of you know the ivory tower and academia and all that mm -hmm. i think i've I, I've experienced enough in my own life with professors and mm -hmm. deans and all of that to kind of look at it and be like, all right, you guys need to get off your asses and get in the field because you haven't been there in long enough. You don't know what's going on. Um, yeah. But at the same time, there's, you know, they'll say, oh, well, you, you know, you had a college education in history. You don't actually know. Your I'm sitting here I'm like, do you know what I did? Do you have any idea yeah. what a, you a university degree in history is? Because they seem to think that <laughs> it's like, a professor standing up there at the front of the room saying and this happened and then this happened and you're just taking notes just memorizing and i'm like no i i read the primary source documents myself like yeah when i was studying to do my paper my term paper on the rebellion of owen Dower, i sat there and Never i read even heard of that yeah i know that's that's a granular little <laughs> one isn't it um yeah. dude's that's super you know cool he's a super about. cool dude <laughs> But, you know, I sat there and I read through the Chronicle of Adam of Usk and the Chronicle of uh, Engeron de Monstrelet and the Chronicle of Thomas Walsingham. Like, I sat there and I read through these that were written in the early 1400s when all of this happened. I didn't just listen to my professor say stuff. Like, and that's the same thing archaeologists do to a large extent. I will say there have been times where I've felt like there have been people just trying to shut down conversation but totally at totally. the same time like i i got i i do know archaeologists and i know what they do in the field and i know that it's hard work a lot of it is very underpaid digging in the ground trying to understand things that happened so long ago that most people don't care also that a guy like me <laughs> yeah. can look at it and go can you explain this uh like, Fuck you aiden uh, no. absolutely not uh, so i i don't understand the you know if it's just a professor who's staying there going, ah, yeah, no, that didn't happen. I, I get it that you're like, ah, that sounds, that that's not really convincing. But when, you know, the, the video I've gotten the most pushback from the Tartaria people on was originally a TikTok. Uh, it was a stitch. And um, basically some guy who his whole thing, he's not, he's not trying to convince anybody that anything happened. He's just, you know, saying, and there's people that believe this. I, uh, he's sitting there, he's talking about Tartaria and all the maps and that. And I made a video and I basically went, yeah, this is because the map the, the term for eurasia used to be tartaria like that we didn't have the term eurasia yet the people there that is, lived everyone. on the edge of european knowledge called themselves the tatars so they called the whole area tartaria they it, it wasn't that they like there was an empire there 
And if you look at the maps, it's kind of funny because what is considered Tartary keeps getting pushed further and further east as they discover what these tribes actually call themselves. Um, <laughs> so by the end of it, like they're like, yeah, so Mongolia is here and this is all part of Russia now. China's over here, um, you know, and most of it's just the old Russian Empire. What people don't seem to know is that the Russians did not actually expand into that territory until the 1800s. Like the well, the point at know, which they actually I, I established I... it. <laughs> I think I have a theory. So, you know, how you say it keeps getting pushed farther and farther to like the, you know, the north, yeah. the northeast as time goes on. Well, you know, the very last place where mastodons or mammoths existed was on a little island in Siberia about 4,000 mm -hmm. years ago. I think the Tartars were uh, mastodons. And it's eventually going to get pushed to that one island and that's going to be the ones. And they're the ones who did the Chicago World's Fair. Mud flood. Right. Okay. That explains it. The, yeah. I'm not. How do you I'm explain, the, how, do you explain the, how do you explain the lack of mammoths in Chicago in 1892? Listen, I'm not here for your lips, son. <laughs> That's how I see it going if anybody comes on the show to argue for Tartari. <laughs> you know, and you bring up a really good point talking about the, uh, you know, the idea of the, the, the sort of academic, like, hive mind, I guess. Because it, it is something which I have noticed to be such a, a constant when talking about conspiracies. And it is this idea of trying to, you know... I guess it really is a distrust in sort of uh, science and sort of the, you know, the mainstream viewpoint. And obviously, I think all viewpoints need to be challenged, especially the mainstream one. I mean, fucking 500 years ago, we thought the world revolved, you know, the sun revolved around the earth. Like, mm -hmm. question that, you know, yeah. that's the only reason we're here now. Um, but something that I think is really interesting about it is just the uh, how many arguments I have gotten on my videos talking about Hancock's ancient apocalypse that are, I have not gotten a single argument really talking about any of the actual points. They're just like, you are a mainstream archaeologist, you're one of the people, like, I literally got one that was like, you're one of the people he warned us about. I'm like, I am the mainstream archaeologist, the <laughs> prophecies foretold, like, what the fuck? <laughs> and it's like, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, you're not, like, engaging in conversation. It's just this idea that, like, they are lying to you. And I had this one where there was this, uh, you know, conspiracy that I was doing on TikTok where there was a woman who thought the sun wasn't real, which was interesting. Uh, and her whole thing was like, you know, she was talking about like the speed of light and like how confusing it is. And I remember very vividly the word she used was they just are telling you all this to try and confuse you. And I was like, you just had a really bad science teacher. Like yeah. that completely changed my like view of it. And I was like, fuck, like you just had someone who made you feel shitty about learning. Mm -hmm. And that's something which I see is like, you know, Hancock comes in here and he preaches this whole thing of like, you know, all those people who like, you know, gave you like a, a, a D minus in English or like, you know, a D minus in social studies. Like, well, they were all lying to you and I'm the one that's right. And so it draws all these people in because they feel accepted by this person. And by vilifying all the ones who made them feel pain in the past, he's like, I am I am your Messiah. Right. And so it draws this huge crowd in. And it's really unusual to watch. But I mean, I guess it makes perfect sense. It's just a psychology thing. You know, everyone only wants one thing and that's to feel accepted. And so I guess if you can capitalize on that, it works. <laughs> yeah, it's there's there's some people out there that need some direction. <laughs> I could not have said it better. That's probably the best way. Eloquently well put. <laughs> um, but with that said, I think it is probably a good time to go over to question time. So for those who are not uh, regulars of the stream, because I noticed that number is a little higher than usual. Uh, the way we typically do Q&A is that we answer Super Chats first. We'll then have him go through and scroll through regular chats. Uh, the reason we do Super Chats first is because it helps fund the show and because, you know, those people put their money up. So it, they at least deserve to have an answer to their question. Um, so we'll be going through those. Uh, Aiden, would you like to uh, 
quickly to take us off. Sure, yeah. And just the structure of this, we're doing similar to the last time we did it on Weird Bible, which is just going to be we're going through the most relevant ones to this discussion first, and then we will filter down through things that are a little bit less relevant. So Perfect. first one in that regard is from Jim Slater for two pounds uh, and says, uh, do you think Graham Hancock is bitter that he never got accepted? It's a little vague, but I'm curious if you guys can decipher what that means a little bit more in detail. I'm curious about your you want- thoughts on that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Jim, I think that, uh, you know, my, my, my thoughts on it, I think this actually ties perfectly in with what I was just talking about, where it's the idea of feeling like you are not accepted that makes you want to fight back against, you know, the mainstream. Um, and so I definitely think that there is some part of Hancock that is bitter about that. I don't know if that's his primary motivation for doing this. In fact, I doubt it is because yeah. he does. I do think he genuinely believes in this. Um, but absolutely. And I think part of my reason for uh, believing that to give a little bit more credence to it is, uh, you know, he talks a lot about, um, you know, what archaeologists think. And a lot of the ideas that he brings up are things that haven't actually been thought in the last like 40 years. Like, he, you know, this idea that like, you know, uh, you know, hunter gatherers were primitive, like that was a way that people thought when like, maybe, you know, he was in school or like our parents were in school. But like, any archaeologist you talk to today would never tell you that, you know, hunter-gatherers were primitive. And so I do definitely think that he, you know, experienced a lot of scorn from that community. And I don't blame him for holding that mm-hmm. sort of resentment. But I definitely think that that does fuel his fire quite a bit. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that, that I think that at this point, a lot of what drives him to keep going, because the guy's in his 70s. He's already written his books. <laughs> yeah. He's made his appearances, like... There, I there's not he was that old. Oh yeah, he's, he's an old Yeah, dude. no, dude's wow. a, yeah. he's fucking still kicking. I I got to give him a I, I have to respect it. Yeah. Stop. Yeah. yeah, and you know, I, I on the one hand, like yeah, you know, there there's perhaps he he feels like he's got more to give, but on the other, I do think that a lot of what's driving him to to this day is the the way that so many archaeologists have come after him. And honestly, if I came out with a TV show where I was talking about what Ancient Apocalypse talks about and a bunch of people called me a racist, I would probably also be very irritated because I didn't I, I watched that entire show and I did not detect an inkling of racism. It was just he doesn't mention race. And I, I read one of the articles. It was like, everybody knows that, you know, Graham is imagining these people as being white. And I was like, I don't think it is. I don't think it really matters what color they were. That's probably irrelevant considering that this existed so long ago if it did and nobody would be mm-hmm. recognizable to us today. And he's also talking about it being over in, you know, North America for the most part. Um, but, you know, so I do think there's some bitterness there definitely. And maybe that is probably what is driving him to, to keep fighting so hard. Um, but I do agree with you. I think he probably genuinely believes this and probably early on was a little irritated that the way he was looked at was as, uh, you know, a con man or uh, somebody just like a snake oil salesman, something like that. Um, that probably definitely contributed to all of this when fingerprints of the gods first came out um i think that that there is a, a little bit of irony that had the reception been a little bit warmer to him then the amount of vitriol probably would have been lesser over the years mm-hmm. so you got oh. another one for us yeah sir uh the next one's from matt keen for 499 saying love your content man really enjoy what you do but how can you all believe the pesky roman empire was a thing it's not like there's proof Oh, uh, man, I mean, you know what? When that one lady from Southern Kentucky uh, <laughs> really opened my eyes, I just, I, I can't, I can't believe it anymore. 
Well, you know, I I didn't believe in in Rome until she tried to dox me. That really, yeah. you know, that that really pushed me over the edge. <laughs> that was a little, uh, you know, not not cool. <laughs> oh my god! Funny little piece I'll interject here. Probably, you know, like a year and a half after that whole event has died down, is to this day all of the, like the like pages that talk about who I am as a person mm-hmm. online say that I went to the University of Mount Olive oh because gosh. she interpreted UMO wrong in my fucking bio when she tried to dox me. And what was UMO Maine? University of Maine, Orono. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, I remember. Yeah. I, oh, so, I got a, I got like a seven day TikTok ban after that because I pointed out to her, I made, I like stitched it, and I was like, Donna, he went to the University of Maine, not the University of Mount Olive. They have an archaeology <laughs> program. Like, also, and I, I think I, I capped it off of this. I was like, also, how dare you go into somebody else's credentials when you've been lying about yours this whole time? <laughs> she never had a degree. I'm so I am glad that that whole event is over, but I will say that that is definitely one of the most entertaining oh, things yeah. that has happened to me in this job. That shit was hilarious. That was so much fun. <laughs> Did not enjoy all of the you know conspiracy theory about me that she cooked. No, up, but uh, aside from that, it was entertaining. <laughs> At least you guys can see the silver lining in yeah. all of that. Oh, exactly. Course. It's secondhand fun, you know. Now a year and a half later, we can laugh about it. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what that's what matters. Uh, the next exactly. one's just a fun one from Agamemnon's gym bag for three, $3.50, which always love the specific. Yeah, he gives us very specific super yeah. chats. Uh, mm. Just saying, Atlantis is just a scheme to sell flood insurance. <laughs> that would be a very good campaign. would be a I'd solid be campaign, that. yeah. Like, yeah. That would be a fun, like, I could see that 90s commercial. Yeah. Like the really over Ooh. the top. <laughs> or like a state farm. Yeah. Or farmers yeah. with... Uh, All state. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Either him or farmers. the one with uh, oh God. J.K. Simmons. That's it. Uh, farmers would be appropriate, actually. <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah, I guess that would make sense. Uh, got one from your boy from 199 saying, Archaeology and the Bible, do these mix, bussy? Uh, I, I mean, there's been a, there was a very famous, I can't remember the name of the uh, expedition, but there was a very famous World War One uh, battle where one of the lower-ranking officers in the british army remembered a bible passage about a pass that goes through a certain set of mountains and wow. they they ended up using that to beat the ottomans because the pass was Holy still there shit. so i will say i will say that much i think that the bible when it comes to archaeology is an invaluable resource because oh, yeah. the worst thing that happens if you use the bible as a, a place to start when you're looking for things mm-hmm. is that it's not there it may not be a map, but yeah. it's a good compass. Yeah, but at the very least, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Good way of putting you know? it. And, and also, yeah, no, I think I, the Bible's been widely misinterpreted over the ages. There used to be people who thought the Exodus happened in the 1500s BC, and all evidence actually within the Bible points to 1207 BC. So, you know, there's, like, we, you know, the cities of Pithom and Ramses were built far, far after the 1500s mm-hmm. under Ramses II. And, like... So it is a good resource because it can it can give you a great starting point for a ton of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I am Aiden is obviously a lot more well versed in sort of biblical uh, you know knowledge than I am. But as the archaeology uh, side of things, I can tell you that the Bible is invaluable. There is a whole field that is just called biblical archaeology. So yeah, it is it yeah. is like the two of them are are hand in hand, like peanut oh, butter and jelly. A lot of holy texts. Are oh yeah, very oh, yeah. good, very good resources for history. Even Absolutely. if you, you, you shouldn't take them at face value, but, you know, when it comes to... But again, as a compass, I yeah, like that analogy. That's a good analogy. That was a very good way of putting it. 
Um, what else we got? Next we got uh, Donovian for $5 said, Milo, what would be the one piece of evidence that would change your mind on Hancock's theory? Interesting. That's a phenomenal question. Um, I would say, wow, yeah, no, that's a, that's, a, that's a really good one. I think that we would need to see something a lot more centralized. So a lot of what uh, Hancock shows uh, throughout his series is evidence of cultures that were influenced by this alleged parent culture. Um, where Hancock never actually shows any evidence of the parent culture itself. Um, now, he does go to the Bimini Road, which is something that I don't believe is an anthropological or archaeological site. Um, so what I would need to see in order to actually believe that his theory has any credence is evidence of this parent culture itself. Um, now, I know that in his books, he doesn't mention this in his show, so I don't know if he still believes this, but in his books, he mentions that this parent culture existed in Antarctica. Um, I think that that is very conveniently placed because it is now completely covered in ice and we cannot access it. Um, but if he were to present a single piece of information to me, it would be some sort of physical evidence of this lost civilization, whether it be a city, uh, skeletal remains, or uh, anything other than just people who were allegedly inspired at some mm -hmm. point. Solid answer. I would say so. Yeah. Next one is from Draco Logan for five pounds saying, Milo, fellow archaeologist here, you do so much to contribute to the general understanding of our field. Keep up the amazing work. So just a little bit of, of thanks and gracious. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I do what I can. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bragwin for $5 said, love to see Milo collab with Gutsick Gibbon, a paleontologist slash primatologist. Primatologist. That debunks. Uh, primates. Got it. Uh, that debunks conspiracies on YouTube. I think that'd be awesome. Yeah. All right. That's uh, a name sign for you to me up. Write down. I'd love to. That go. sounds great. Yeah, I'll keep Guts that one in the notes. Uh, That's a good name. Yeah. Right. It's a cool one. Uh, next good. one's from Dylan Mott for four ninety nine saying, "Also, what do you think of the Baltic Sea anomaly, the coast to coast whole story, and the trade the explainers among us phenomenon?" Uh, also, Hobby Lobby L. Hobby Lobby is an L, but I don't know what the other ones are. I don't understand a single thing that's said except for the Hobby Lobby thing. And the only thing I think of with Hobby Lobby is the time we had Norman on the show. Oh, yeah. yeah there was the, the whole Hobby Lobby biblical artifacts thing. He came he wrote a paper on it in college and he told us all about it. Um, that That's like episode probably like 12. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in there. So if you want to find that. Uh, yeah, what is this Hobby one? Hobby Lobby like and Norman on the channel. Yeah, like 84, uh, I think. Uh, next one's from Plaid. Coast to coast whole story. Yeah, Baltic I don't know what that anomaly. means. I'm gonna look up Baltic Sea yeah, anomaly because that's anomaly. the one that sounds familiar to me. Coast to coast whole story and Trey the explainers among us phenomenon. Baltic Sea anomaly. These are at the very least your question will be answered at a later. It time. is a geological <laughs> formation. Okay, uh, visible is a physical a feature visible on an indistinct sonar image taken by Peter Lindbergh. Dennis Oberg and their Swedish Ocean X diving team while treasure hunting on the floor of the Northern Baltic Sea in the Gulf of Bothnia in June of 2011. And I love that they're still treasure hunting. I mean, uh, that's, that's what we're looking at. <laughs> we never stop. I will say this much. Uh, it looks like the Millennium Falcon. Um, <laughs> it's the Millennium Falcon! So we found it. It was real. George didn't lie the whole time. I, I, will, have to, uh, I will have to look it up. Um, it is interestingly shaped, for sure uh being being yeah that, that's interesting that's circular but it again is an indistinct sonar picture so i'll i'll look more <laughs> into that and I'm, I'm happy yeah. to talk about it uh you know we can we can discuss that sounds interesting i'm curious next one is from plaz for two dollars saying what do you all think of heiser especially milo uh do you, heiser. Start? Do you know uh dr michael heiser i don't He's 
he is a a huge huge favorite of mine he actually just passed away three weeks ago um oh damn yeah he was a phd uh biblical scholar uh oh okay fluent, uh, that's in your wheelhouse yeah, fluent <laughs> biblical hebrew uh you know talked a lot about biblical archaeology and biblical history and um in comparison with the local religions mesopotamian canaanite um egyptian and uh you know in, in my opinion i think he's he has uncovered what the the catholic church and the orthodox church and by extension the protestant churches uh kind of didn't talk about he, he uncovered a a series of supernatural elements through lines in the bible mm. that don't really get discussed and they talk about things like the heavenly host and the true nature of angels and demons in their biblical uh in their biblical nature i just find it to be a fascinating resource um really takes christianity out of being and judaism out of being kind of the you know be a good person, you go to heaven. Be a bad person, you go to hell. Simpl simplism, um, simplicity, and breaks it out into something that feels a lot more like a, a complete mythology than mm. this sort of easy to digest Sunday school narrative. Um, mm. and it, it makes Christianity far more interesting and also answers a lot of the basic questions that people will ask. Um, you know, throughout reading the Bible, but I, I find him to be a very fascinating scholar, and I, uh, mm. I really am, am disappointed that we never got the chance to talk to him. Mm. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm not familiar with him until now, but I would yeah. love to if look into him more. That's you would really probably enjoy uh, his takedown of Zechariah Sitchin if you go to sitchinwrong.com. Oh. That's probably Shit, why they assumed wow, you knew man. about him. Uh, if you go to sitchinwrong.com, uh, wow, assuming it's still up, fucking... yeah. But he does a very good job of totally taking down Sitchin. Now that I'd like to see. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, next is from Dr. Shi for $5 saying, For Aiden Mattis, how many points in Graham's work would you say you're in agreement with? What do you disagree with and why? It's I couldn't necessarily say points. I could more say that I'm with him probably 70% of the way uh, in that I could see there being a the beginnings of human civilization uh, before... You know, at, first of all i could agree with him that i think meltwater pulse 1b was probably catastrophic for anybody living along the coastlines um you know even if it took several years then it's enough sea level rise to become problematic especially with when you think about how that affects storms um and flooding and things like that i'm with him on that i am with him on the possibility that there was an early civilization where i really break from him is when he starts to talk about the level of advancement and the extent I think we're probably talking not about a global culture, but rather uh, independent, isolated little pockets of what could be described as civilization um, that were probably not in communication with each other and that simply did not have the resources to survive that degree of sea level rise in that short a period of time. You know, when you think about what these mm -hmm. people are building with, um, you know, and even, even if sea levels only were rising a couple of inches a year, then they would still be able to look at that and go, hmm, well, over the last 10 years, we lost about a foot and a half of shoreline. Yeah. Uh, maybe we should move inland. So, you know, you've got to remember, these are people. They're not, they're not animals. They're not, and even animals are actually ahead of us when it comes to tsunamis. So yeah. it seems reasonable that they may have looked at it and gone, hmm, yeah, that's probably going to keep going. We should move. But that would have, at a time when all of your writing was done on stone and clay tablets, that would have basically erased any knowledge, any written record you had. You would have had to start over from what you could remember. And when you look at 
how prevalent oral history is. I think that that is a reasonable thing to assume. I just don't think that there mm. is a, a significant amount of advancement <clears throat> past, you know, the early Bronze Age. Mm. At the most. Cool. Uh, next one's from John Deere Boy for $10 saying, Thoughts on a lot of weird weather events with relation to the day after tomorrow? Parallels, differences, gotcha. and things like that. So, Have you seen that movie? I have. It was a long time ago, but yeah. I remember it vaguely. It was uh, yeah, a good movie from what I remember. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I saw it in 10th grade. I just remember Jake Gyllenhaal shivering the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, there is one thing that you got to keep in mind when it comes to the prevalence and the rate of immense weather events, hurricanes, tornadoes, things like that, our tracking of them has gotten significantly better. So yeah. to look at an increase in the rate of tornadoes and hurricanes and stuff like that, we're starting to notice the category ones and the category twos that even a hundred years ago, there was no way you were going to notice unless it caused significant damage. So we can sense everything from space now. Uh, I think focusing too much on the increase in weather events can lead you to worry that there's, you know, something much worse going on than what is likely a, in large portion, our ability to sense these things. I don't know if you have a different opinion, Milo. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, I did, um, environmental science and in my time doing that, we had to do, you know, climatology and stuff like that. Um, and you know, we, we are seeing, you know, an increase in these events and there is obviously an increase in our ability to perceive them, which is definitely something Aiden that you, um, you know, rightfully bring up. Um, but we're seeing an increase in the frequency. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, I think it was like two years ago or something like that. I remember looking at like the radar and there was like six hurricanes in yeah. a line throughout like all of the Atlantic. And it was like, this is a little bit much. And so a parallel, which I think would be pretty easy to draw, um, is, you know, as we are currently going through sort of a, uh, you know, climatic changing event, um, the people in the, you know, time period, which you've been talking about through all of this podcast, were also going through a climate change event. Uh, however, theirs was influenced by that meltwater pulse 1B, which messed up all of the ocean currents mm -hmm. and would have changed the way that the climate worked. Uh, now, as we are uh, currently going through anthropogenic climate change, we are seeing very similar things happening just on a uh, sort of inverse level. So as uh, with them, it would have slowed down ocean currents. For us, it's, you know, speeding them up. I mean, California has been hit by the amount of snow that they've gotten in the mountains over the course of the last year is just fucking ridiculous. Kind of funny. So like, you They're know, like, the, oh, no, yeah, I know, snow ironic, and right? me sitting here as a Pennsylvanian, <laughs> I'm like, you got like a foot. Yeah. Also, like, yeah, yeah. give it to us. We miss yeah, it. Yeah, we miss the snow yeah. here. Come on, bring it back. Like, can you please send us some? Who said so, you can you know, have I mean, that? It is interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> please. I know I've been in Boston and it's like 40 degrees the whole year. And I'm like, can we have winter, please? Mm -hmm. I'd like yeah. some of that. But I guess not. Yeah. So, you know, I do think there is something to be said for, you know, there's there's obviously we're getting better at perceiving it. Um, you know, it's a mix of that and the fact that there's more of it. It's, mm -hmm. it's uh, you know, I, and I think only time will tell. Yeah. Uh, with sort of, you know, if we want to compare it to the edge of tomorrow or, you know, another movie, it's going to be, uh, we'll see in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, right. Next one is from Kriplovsky for 20 pounds saying, Greek myth refers to Tartarus as an underground place that has a similar name to Tartaria. Do you think anyone who wants to look for evidence would have any chance looking for caves in or around Mesopotamia and the Black Sea? I can take it. Uh, unfortunately, that has a very, very simple answer, and it is etymology. The two are completely etymologically distinct, uh, and Ooh. therefore most likely unrelated. Hmm. Uh, Tartarus, of course, is being described as a, a great pit. Etymology. Uh, mm. uh, Tartaria, um, in my understanding, is it's an endonym, 
um, or at least an exonym formed off of an endonym. That meaning that an an, an exonym means a name given to a, a group of people or a place by uh, outsiders. Endonym means what you call yourselves. For example, the the Dene cultures of Canada and the southwestern United States. Uh, the term uh, Pridain, which is what the Britons used to describe themselves when the Romans and the Greeks arrived. Um, that's why it became Britannia and then Britannia and then Britain. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so that's, I, I, when it comes to Tartaria, you know, named by the Russians, Slavic languages are not etymologically related outside of the very, very distant past with Indo-European, uh, you know, 3000 BC. Uh, they're not related to to one another. So the likelihood that Tartaria and Tartarus had anything to do with each other is very low. Hmm. Uh, so we have reached the end of the ones that are directly relevant to this okay. until new ones come in. So these are a little bit more off topic. Uh, so the first one in relevancy there is Pumpkin Bear 7 for 199 said, uh, Milo, thoughts on New Orleans? <laughs> Negative. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I, much I, like I, Atlantis, it was buried underwater. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, honestly, New Orleans is one that I really like to go. I'm a big fan of uh, Auten Shea uh, films. I uh, He was kind of my inspiration for starting YouTube, and I actually got to do, uh, you know, a, a talk with him back uh, at the end of the summer, which was really great. And he's from New Orleans, and so if I'm ever down there, I, I would really like to be there just to, you know, maybe get a little tour from him. I know he did tour guide stuff down there, but it seems like a cool city, you know? Maybe I'll, maybe I'll pass through. <laughs> well, if you have any recommendations, I have to be there for work starting wednesday until saturday so <laughs> i i do have a recommendation bring a snorkel uh, will yeah. do <laughs> um the next one is from your boy from 199 saying who has the best hair oh shit i have the darkest hair i have the light i have hair. the longest hair i somehow have the lightest <laughs> beard do you i think so i'll that's yeah. weird. Yeah, that is weird. Because I'm the blonde one. Yeah, I don't know. Let's see, you're more strawberry blonde. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I, I have, it's, first of all, I'm laughing at myself calling this a beard, but uh, we're working on it. <laughs> Dude, um, I feel that. <laughs> I have not fully shaved since November. I just trim, you yep. know, keep it, keep it a reasonable three millimeters. Um, I don't have anything that grows above my jawline, so. Yeah, you're trying your best. I'm doing what I can. Um, I, personally, <laughs> I mean, I, I cannot put my hair in a ponytail. I just started being able to do that. I'm not going to lie. Yo! It is kind of nice to have the... Oh, yeah, I have a fellow long hair person yeah. here. It is kind of nice once you can finally do that again, where it's like, oh, I can feel like I have short hair, and my neck can breathe, but then when I want it, I have the mane again. It's just very yeah, nice. Yeah, that, that was the worst part. I know, I, I have been doing this for a long time. Uh, I got to say, getting into the bun stage was a, a stage I never thought I was going to be able to reach. Mm. Not only be able to do the ponytail, but to fold it back on itself. I don't know if I needed to go this far. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I was looking through trying to find a picture of you to use before you sent me one for the thumbnail, and I was I came across some like really old ones from like probably like three hair? four years ago. Yeah, that was like <laughs> you have longer hair when I started seeing them on TikTok. Uh, <laughs> what the hell was that cut? God damn! Uh, what else you got for us here? So your boy just gave one that is a bit more relevant to okay. what we were discussing, which sure. is uh, any notable biblical archaeological discoveries, such as Noah's Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, the Dead Sea Scrolls v V2, and I guess anything that's relevant? Uh, not, I, I mean, I have one that I can think of. I don't know if you have any that are recent. Uh, not, one, I'm, I'm not a biblical guy. Yeah, the, the one that comes to mind for me is the, uh, the Mount Ebal tablet. We've mentioned this mm -hmm. on a, a few shows, um, especially last, uh, last summer when it was um, you know, really hitting the news. 
there was a uh, little two centimeter, I think by two centimeter tablet found on Mount Ebal in Israel, which is a mountain mentioned in Deuteronomy. There's a, a line of Deuteronomy where um, they're told, put a curse on Mount Ebal. And this has always been thought to be a kind of like, you know, vague, like symbolic thing, you know, go to Mount Ebal and you know, say, you are cursed mountain. Um, mm -hmm. What they found was a, at a site they believe dates to t about 1200 BC, they found a copper tablet that is two centimeters by two centimeters that is inscribed with the phrase, uh, like, you know, Yahweh put a curse upon you, ye are cursed by Yahweh, mm -hmm. uh, which of course Yahweh being one of the Hebrew names for God, for, for the, the, the big God, you know, the big guy, uh, the dude, which would dial back the writing of Hebrew if that dating is confirmed. Uh, I think it's yet to be peer-reviewed. Uh, but the, again, the last time I really looked into this deeply was last summer. Um, but when it was discovered, they dated it to about 1200 BC, which would take the date of uh, Jewish-specific writing in Israel back about 800, or not 800, about uh, oh. 400 years. Holy shit, yeah, that's so crazy. It, it goes from we start to see Hebrew writing in around 800 BC, and that's also the first... Uh, the currently the oldest uh attested mention of yahweh and it's in canaanite mythology that would take it back 400 years which might bring it beyond wow. its entrance into canaanite mythology uh which would then tell us uh for certain who came up with yahweh first if it was the, if it was in 1200 then it was the jews if it was uh if it was not it might have been the canaanites which would give you wow. a very basically this could confirm that uh that the jews brought yahweh into Canaan from Egypt, uh, and there was no Egyptian wow. god known as Yahweh, which would mean that that dates the the god Yahweh to being original to the Israelite peoples. That's fascinating. Yeah, That's it's really a really cool. cool one. It's very huh, exciting. Uh, so we did just get a couple more relevant ones. Sure. Uh, one was from where we go. We got uh, Agamemnon's gym bag for twenty one thirty. Love the specific one. Uh, I think it would be beneficial for academics to entertain this kind of stuff. In my opinion, stuff that is obvious to experts is too often dismissed outright, where it may not be so obvious to the average Joe. Thoughts? I think that's kind of where we come in. <laughs> Spot on. Spot on. No, it really is. I mean, that, that's one of the things that I think I noticed a lot while doing the ancient apocalypse thing is like, you know, it's, you know, I, I don't want to run the risk of calling everyone who watched ancient apocalypse of like, oh, you guys just don't know it. You know, you need to be trained in this. I don't think you need to be trained in it. But, uh, you know, Graham Hancock capitalizes on the fact that not everyone is trained in archaeology. I mean, he doesn't, you know, do, in my opinion, his due diligence sort of explaining a lot of the, uh, you know, the the foundation of a lot of the things he's talking about, which allows him to sort of get away with saying things uh, and making them seem simpler than they actually are. Yeah. I mean, when talking about sea level rise, I mean, Aiden, you gave a perfect example of, you know, what the sea level rise was actually like during the Younger Dryas, where his implication is sort of just like, oh, my God, it all went up at once. And where did yeah. everyone go? And like, you know, you need to kind of have these like foundational things. And so I do think that like, you know, um, it's it's unfortunate when when professionals sort of dismiss this stuff because not everyone has a foundation in this. Very few people, like most most people, are a layman when it comes to very specific you know academic fields. And so it's our responsibility as the people who are trained in it to be able to make it digestible so that everyone can understand it. So, yeah, I, I think that there's there's definitely a space. And as I talk to you know my professors in grad school and. I had a very candid conversation with one of them last semester, and basically uh, the, the conclusion was with where academia is right now, it's kind of stagnant. There's not a ton of jobs, especially in the history field. Um, basically, what I was what I was told in uh, 
in vague terms was keep doing what I'm doing and don't expect <laughs> to get a job as a professor. Thank you. And that it's better for me to uh, keep doing what I'm doing now. Um, yeah. Because there's just no work. And so much of it really is as simple as sitting in front of a class and talking about history and every couple of years writing a, a journal article. Um, Mm-hmm. So I think that there's definitely a space and I, I wish that some of the more, um, more talented professors when it comes to presentation and teaching would get into the podcasting and YouTube space because there's such a wide, yeah. and the fact of the matter is, I don't think they know that they can make so much more money than they make. Oh no, yeah, no, they could make as professors bank doing this shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, like, you know, obviously not every single one of them, but if you try it, if you simply like, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm sure that this is not going to be the most popular thing for me to say in front of you, but if you look at Jordan Peterson, like the way he got big on the internet was by just recording his lectures and posting them to YouTube. So I think if a lot Mm -hmm. more professors just started doing that, they could reach a lot more people and they could make a lot more money. Yeah. Yeah. Be a little bit of a detriment to those of us who are still trying to go the traditional route, but you know, education. Yeah. Don't don't let them know. Yeah. The the university (laughs) system, the undergrads or the, the, you know, the graduates need to take this one. (laughs) The, The university system as it exists today has only existed for the past thousand years. And that's in, you know, the vaguely similar way at at first it was, Mm -hmm. you know, you had noblemen who were paying, you know, monks and, and philosophers to come speak to them around 1100 AD, uh, you know, at Paris and at Cambridge and at Oxford, it's morphed into what we have today. It won't always be what we have today. And I think at this point where information is so readily available to anybody with an internet connection, we're going to probably start to see a shift where education is no longer formed around what you're doing in class and your grades, but rather around you know, receiving a passing exam grade from an accredited institution that just says that you know the stuff you know. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that would probably be for the better. Yeah, and I think it even goes beyond that just because of the fact that the way society is based in terms of university and then careers passed on beyond it mm-hmm. is that the entire point of college at this point is really to just get a piece of paper that says you did a thing. Yeah, somebody did mm-hmm. mention something in the chat that I just want to get to really quick because yeah. I, I this is a big one that I see. Um, the Sphinx. Oh, the water. Can you can you explain sphinx. to me in the same way you did it last time how the sphinx erosion makes sense? Because to me the the sand Gladly. blasting does make sense. But you're you're the guy. Yeah. So so um for those of you who are unfamiliar there's a hypothesis that the sphinx was built uh you know a lot longer ago than archaeologists say it was built. Uh the evidence for this comes from erosion along the sides of it which are partway up. Um, which uh, people claim to be water erosion. And they, uh, you know, uh, postulate the idea that it was built while the Sahara um, or, you know, this part of the desert was still green. Um, and so it must be like 6,000 years old instead of 4,000 years old or something like that. Um, now, the I, I have yet to actually see super compelling evidence for this. Uh, a lot of the erosion that you see on the sides of the Sphinx is sloped, uh, which makes sense when you consider the fact that uh, it was completely buried in dunes by the time it was found again. Um, and so when you have this sort of sloped surface, uh, surface of sand and you have wind blowing up it, which, you know, is coming all across the desert with nothing to stop it, uh, it will literally just sandblast the shape of this dune onto the side of the Sphinx. Mm-hmm. Um, and when under, uh, you know, water and air work in much the same way as far as like their properties when they are moving. Uh, and so when you consider this, you know, you're, you're, you're really using more of a sandblasting method than the water. Now, another piece which people have brought up is the idea that there's these like 
uh, little like trickle kind of striations down the side of the Sphinx. Um, and that must be evidence that water was running off of it at one point. Um, and now while it does look like water erosion, um, I think that there are two very um, much more likely uh, hypotheses, which one is it is sand doing the exact same thing and falling down over the course of 4,000 years and creating similar patterns. And also the fact that even though it is a desert, it does rain there. Not very much, but 4,000 years on a very soft stone and you will be begin to see some sort of changes. Um, so for me, I just haven't seen nearly enough evidence to actually support the fact uh, that this is that old. Not to mention the fact that there are carvings on it, which literally date to exactly when it was built. Like they say, like who it was built for, who built it. There's, you know, like the workers camps around it and stuff. Right. So it's not like some like mystery just found in the middle of the desert. It's like, no, it is an in-context site with all of the, you know, necessary documentation about what it is and surrounded by buildings associated with its construction. It, it's not as much of a mystery as I think some people would like to have us believe. Yeah, I'm, I like that explanation. That makes sense. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, next, we got John Hasewager for four ninety nine saying uh, takes on Schliemann. Besides him being what Graham must imagine all archaeologists are like, I think Schliemann's a lot closer to Grand Hancock than he's to any other archaeologist. <laughs> I mean, the guy basically went, "I think this is there," and then dug through <laughs> so many layers of other stuff, and then eventually found what he said was there. But God, I mean, on the one hand, the man did a huge thing for history and archaeology by showing that Troy existed. But on the other hand, how much we must have lost when he was just basically <laughs> drilling through Plowing the ground. through it. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. somebody has got to be the guy that, that starts something, but I just wish he could have done it a little bit less destructively. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that's something you'll see with a lot of, like, different, you know, early archaeology is just how much stuff was lost doing it. Like, it, it's pretty astonishing. I was just down in uh, uh, Philly at the, uh, the Penn Museum, um, and they were talking about, you know, the Penn Museum was built. I know, I, I should have come by and said hi. I'll have to Let's do it next time. It <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fuck you. <laughs> um, and while I was down there, uh, you know, they were talking about how they built this museum uh, because of the excavations at Ur. And he's like, you can still go, uh, the, the archaeologist, uh, Dr. Hafford, who was the one who I did the uh, Baghdad, or the uh, Dendera light video mm -hmm. with, or no, the Baghdad battery video mm -hmm. with. Um, uh, he was talking, he was like, you know, you can still go there and see, uh, Wooly was the guy who did the first excavations at Earth. He's like, the piles that they dug out are literally just massive piles of pottery because they just didn't bother taking anything that wasn't fully intact. So they just toss it in the pile. And it's like all of this shit that you guys just broke and left in a giant pile is, it's hilarious how terrible the ethics were back then. <laughs> yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it's, you got to look back and respect that the guy was right. Oh, he was. Yeah, no, I can't can't argue that. But at what cost? You do have to wonder. Maybe if they were like, "Yeah, you might be right," but let's be careful about this. Maybe things would have <laughs> yeah. gone better. Um, it's that that constant thing of you know, someone's got a really good idea, and then a bunch of other people are like, "Now hold on, we don't know if we agree yeah, with you, but we're this. also not going to help you investigate it." Like, Zenith twenty five for ten dollars said, "Where are you guys on the eight? Oh, oh no, you oh, just covered okay, that. That actually works really well. Uh, the Thanks thing." Then it was the Sphinx with me. Uh, Operator Unknown for $5 said, is there any socio-political reasons or theories why any of you might think that these deep dives into the Younger Dryas might not be publicly explored? No. Nah, I, I can't think of any reason. And I, I know why you would ask that question. There was a lot of a lot of articles when this came out, you know, Graham Hancock's a racist. Uh, I, I think that race is a very easy smokescreen for when you don't want to engage with something. 
um, and you don't want other people to ask you why you're not engaging with it. Uh, I've seen a lot of people, both left and right, called racist because they brought something up because that, that you know, people didn't want to explain why they disagreed with it. And it was the easiest way to get the masses to kind of go along with it. Every once in a while, somebody comes along and says something that's actually extremely racist, and we should acknowledge that. But, you know, I think <laughs> yeah. I think in the case of Graham Hancock, it was a way for the media to kind of just not deal with what he was saying in the way that you, Milo, have, which is to actually take it head on and show people. You know, I, I think they, they make the assumption that everyone is stupid. Um, everyone <laughs> is not stupid. Not a lot of people are. That's fair. But everyone is not. Um and a lot of people could probably have handled sitting down and reading a Guardian article or watching a PBS special, something like that, on why Grand Hancock is wrong. Um, and I think that they kind of gave it this idea that it's it's about race or socioeconomic status because that way they didn't have to actually confront it. And as you can see, mm -hmm. it's, it's very confrontable. Like, and the, the difficulty, I think, with that, Aiden, I, I think that, like, you know, when, when people sort of bring up that side of Hancock's arguments, I didn't see a single one of them actually execute it in the way that I personally think it should have been executed. Do I think Hancock is racist? Absolutely fucking not. Mm -hmm. Like, the, he, he does not postulate anything that is inherently racist throughout the series of his show. But it is worth noting, and I think this is something that a lot of these, um, you know, uh, different uh, publications were touching on, is the idea that the, some of the things he said would be things that racists would agree with. Because a lot of his theories are things that are like based on the idea that like someone had to come and teach these people how to do this. And, you know, we see that a lot. You know, I've talked about this on my uh, channel before is the idea that like the one that has really popularized, you know, Atlantis and a lot of these sort of lost civilization things were the Nazis. Does that mean Hancock is a Nazi? No. Does that mean the people who believe in Atlantis are Nazis? Absolutely not. But it is worth noting that like when you are putting these things out into the world, who are going to be the people who are going to take these arguments and believe in them? So even though Hancock is not trying to postulate an inherently racist ideology, when he puts these things out into the world, they are bits and pieces of things that a racist person could look at yeah. and be like, ah, yes, see, the indigenous people of North America didn't know how to do that. And it was the, you know, Atlanteans who came from the right. sea. So it is, you know, it's important to find like a middle ground on that. And that I think is what's so frustrating when it comes to people who immediately jump to just Hancock is racist, because then everyone stops listening. And then it's like, well, now we can't even talk about it. Yeah. Like, we need to actually look at like, what are the implications of this? What is the origins of some of this theory? Uh, because it's a lot more nuanced than just he is inherently making a show and being like, this is what I, you know, these people are better than these people or whatever. Um, so you raise a really good point with that because that was something I was seeing as well that was really frustrating because I didn't see anyone actually tackle it with the nuance that I think it deserves to be touched with. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, we got another relevant, relatively relevant one before we jump into the other one saying uh, from Ryan Tanner for $5 saying, Aiden, look into Wilhelm Schmidt's original monotheism theory. Most interesting thing I learned getting a theology degree and it's right up your alley. We'll look into that. Wilhelm Schmidt's original monotheism. Yes. Hmm. And then uh, going back up, let's see. Uh, the dog has made another appearance. Would the oh, dog thank like God. A, a yeah. proper appearance. Would you, like to come up, would you like to come up and say hello? What is the, what is the name of the dog? Archie. Archie, yes. Archie. Yeah, he studies archaeology. Uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, Milo, somebody earlier on was asking, uh, it's your boy for 199 saying, what are your credentials specifically, just to give people context about where you're coming from? 
Absolutely. So I uh, am officially trained at the University of Maine. Uh, so to give a little bit of background of my uh, sort of academic experience, I went to uh, Vogue Tech High School where I studied environmental science. Uh, when I first went there, I wanted to do engineering, but I was like, I did not, was not cut out for it. So I did environmental science. Um, and throughout my time there, I have been interested in archaeology since I was about this big, but they didn't offer anything in archaeology mm -hmm. at Vogue Tech. Uh, so I went to, uh, you know, when college started to come around, I was like, okay, I think I want to do archaeology for college. And I was looking at uh, Boston University and a couple other places. Um, but I talked to my, uh, you know, guidance counselor about it. And he was like, ah, you know, archaeology, you're not going to make much money in it. You should just stick with environmental science. And being foolish, I was like, fine, I'll stick with environmental science. So I picked a school based on that instead. Uh, sophomore year rolls around and I'm like, okay, like environmental science is great, but I know I want to do archaeology. So I go and I talk to my guidance counselor and I'm like, okay, I want a double major. And they're like, well, we can't offer it as a major. We can give it to you as a minor. So I took uh, archaeology as a minor. And then I took all of the anthropology classes that you may offer because mm -hmm. I was like, I just want to get as much of this as I can. Mm -hmm. So currently I have my degree in both uh, environmental science and archaeology. Uh, and I eventually plan on going on to uh, pursue a uh, PhD in archaeology at yeah. some point. But right now I'm like, I want to just take a break because I've been in school for yeah. the last, you know, uh, 20 years and I'm kind of tired of it. Take a break, um, make some so, money, yeah, enjoy life. Exactly, exactly. And honestly, one of the things that I've found to be the most rewarding about doing uh, this as a job is I feel like I've learned more doing this job than I did when I was in school. Like this has just forced me to like think and research and do all of this stuff that like I just haven't been able to do. And college was great because all of the archaeology classes that I took helped me build this really strong foundation and just sort of, uh, you know, understanding how the, you know, how the field works and how the discipline works and stuff like that. Um, but doing my, uh, you know, sort of external research now that this is my job has just been so informative to be able to build my knowledge base farther than I ever thought it was possible yeah I uh, yeah I, I agree I I learned what I learned in college that was really valuable was how to learn it was how to research and study yeah absolutely it wasn't necessarily that I use any of the facts that I learned every day but you know when it comes to doing these videos the reason we can pump out a video a week is because I learned how to research so well in college so yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely all right, you want to lead us into the next? Yes, uh, this is a relatively big one from uh, Essel Jazak uh, for 100 bucks, saying, been watching since the beginning, but I'm very rarely able to make it to a live stream. Glad I was able to tonight. I remember watching your very first podcast live and attending Aww. a few of the old uh, after live stream Damn. campfires. Aww. Love seeing how much your channel has grown. Well, thank you. Thank You've you been here so a much. while then. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, it's been a long Especially time. after uh, wow. podcast campfire chats. Yeah, that was way long ago, like early, early. Yeah. Um, a couple of uh, unrelated ones as well. Operator Unknown for $5 said, totally unrelated, both Aidens and Many Men of Men, would you rather marry a French person and live in Ohio or, vi uh, wait, marry a French person and live in Ohio a, or vice versa, or vice marry person. an Ohioan and live, uh, in, and live France. in France. Got it. Uh, P.S. joining membership next month. Oh, well, thank, thank you. you. I I'll let you answer yeah. that one first. Ooh. God, I don't know which one's worse. <laughs> Live it. My, my thinking is at least in Ohio, I'm around less French people. <laughs> like, I'm around one French person a lot, but I'm not around them all the time. Yeah. And, you know, I like that theory. Just, I like that philosophy. It it's like... just flat Pennsylvania. Yeah. I yeah, how different can it be? I will admit, more recently, I am less inclined to live in Ohio, but I hope they get that cleaned up soon enough. Um, <laughs> yeah. We make fun of Ohio a lot, but in honesty, I feel but bad for them right that. now. they don't deserve that. I mean, come on. <laughs> they did not deserve chemical train exploding. Um, no, yeah. no, not at all. We, we took this one too far, guys. <laughs> this is the man-made horror beyond our comprehension. Uh, <laughs> man. 
we Shit. we make yeah, jokes. I don't, I don't know, man. Good. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I was gonna say I would initially go for France until uh, Aiden pointed out that there's more French people there. Yeah. <laughs> um, just just because France is bigger, I feel like there's more options of places to choose to live. But the downside is that everyone's French. <laughs> you take you sometimes you gotta take the L. Exactly. You know, it's, uh, and the French woman can be Americanized. Depends on how French she is. I can fit her. <laughs> I'll colonize her. She did it. She, she did it here. I'll do it to her. That's amazing. Full circle. Oh, uh, it's the circle of life. Oh, terrible. Uh, next is Origami Comic Fool for $5 said, question for all of you. How do you keep your optimism in the face of all of the craziness you deal with online? Alcohol? Ooh. <laughs> Cheers to that. A, a general, uh, I, I don't know. My philosophy is that, like, I don't know. I think life is too short to be taken seriously. The second I start to take things too seriously is when it starts to stress me out. And so, as long as I'm just like, man, it's fucking, yeah. it's whatever. That's just what I try to do. Like, if you disagree, you disagree. I can only do so much of it, you know. Yeah, up until yesterday, I was handling everything pretty well. Fair. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. There's one too many curveballs. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, another one from uh, Operator. This cheer is a facade. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the dog helps too. He does yeah, yeah. a lot. It's a nice. This is why he's here. Yes. Yeah. Uh, an unofficial emotional support animal. Yeah. Well, he's official. He has, he has documentation. Does he really? Yeah. Look at you. He's, buddy. he's just staring at you. Yeah. He's degreed. Yeah. Damn. You're, you're, you might be one of the most qualified at this table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i'd say so look at him go uh operator unknown was following up from the previous comment about the uh societal limitations about certain topics in the public eye mm. uh mm -hmm. saying i didn't mean hancock specifically for the sociopolitical reasons but uh mm. more so media presentation presenting certain stories as conspiracy oh. in an overall sense yeah definitely Ooh. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah for sure for sure <laughs> yeah and honestly, you know, I think that's a really great question. One, one, uh, I guess, piece that I'll sort of bring up, I don't really know if this sways in either direction, but there was a really interesting case that we talked about in my uh, paleoecology class in college, um, where one of the students there, she was a grad student, and she was currently working on a uh, archaeological excavation in one of the islands off of South America. I can't remember what it was, um, or which island it was. Uh, but they were like completely unable to release the information that they were finding at it uh, because it was all genetic evidence and genetic evidence is so highly tied up in politics. So like if you find the oldest genetic evidence of like your people being present on this island, you have like a claim to it. Yeah. And so like she was like, if we release the information from this study without like to like the general public without like really like making sure we're getting this right, like we could start a war. Um, and so that was a really interesting topic, because normally when we hear about, you know, like, oh, the media is trying to cover it up and stuff, we think of it like a sort of conspiracy, they're all working against us thing. But it was really interesting hearing that and her being like, no, like, I literally, like, I have an NDA, I can't really talk about this, like, because of the potential repercussions. Hey, uh, Milo, what time are you going to go to? uh that depends my friend <laughs> we're uh let's are you, are you good for another 15 30 yeah I, I can do i can do 15 more let's do it right, let's do it all right cool so we'll take it 15 more <laughs> cool sounds good uh agamemnon gym bag for two dollars said uh the french do love their liberty though in relation to the previous i mean they say they do 
They do. But then they joined the Nazis so quickly. <laughs> they do know how to throw a riot slash revolt. They do. I would say they enjoy their their riots more than they do their liberty. Probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like how every, you, you can check touch. you can check on France at any given time in the modern era. You just be like, oh, what's going on in France? And the answer is a riot. Uh, yes, <laughs> a riot. Yeah. It's the simple pleasures, you yeah, know. Exactly. You <laughs> gotta do something on the weekend. Uh. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, now we're going to go through pretty much just like all the random ones that came in from uh, Super Chats. John Deere Boy for $5 saying, Asserting John Deere Supremacy, also hello from Redacted. Oh, well, thank you, John Deere Boy. Thank you, John Deere Boy. Oh, uh, hello from Redacted. Good for you. Uh, Jack Maybe that means he's the Redacted tier on Patreon? I was assuming that. Yeah, that's probably what yeah. that means. Uh, Jack Garcia. Our, our top tier is just says Redacted. It doesn't have a title. Nice, <laughs> nice. That's good. And, uh... Oh, here we go. This is a good one from your boy for four ninety nine. Uh, Milo, biggest pet peeve about the general population's misconceptions about archaeology. Maybe something that is a myth about archaeology? Damn. Ooh, that's a tough one. Biggest pet peeve. Uh, well, I guess I'll, 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 I'll try and come up with something on the fly because there's many things. I'm sure I, I can't come up with the best one right now. Um, but honestly, I would say it's the, it's the willingness to accept something it's the willingness to accept someone who claims to have all the answers because science is not about having all the answers and that's a really frustrating misconception it's the idea that it's like the scientists say they know everything we don't if you ask me to sit down here right now and have like a theological debate about the origin of life i could not tell you one way or another maybe it was god maybe it was luck maybe i just could not tell you but like it, it frustrates me when, you know, someone like Hancock comes on and like, you know, claims to be like, this site is connected to this site is connected to this site and all of it makes sense. And here's the whole thing. I have tied a little bow on it and there you go. And that is just not the way that science works. So it's really frustrating to see people, uh, you know, who, who when, I don't know. Yeah, when, when you are able to just sugarcoat something and tie it all together and just hand it as one complete parcel and the willingness to accept that without the understanding that most stuff we just don't know. <laughs> Good point, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Greek Filter for $5 said, Milo, are you going to go back to having themed drinks to your videos? <laughs> uh, someday I would very much like to. At the moment, uh, actually, the um, Ancient Apocalypse video that I just did is going to be my last video in front of the Blackboard, at least the last video in front of the Blackboard in that location. Uh, so right now I'm working on uh, doing some projects that are going to be coming up where uh, – kind of the the world is going to be my blackboard um but you know when when i do end up getting that set up again i would love to actually resume the awful archaeology and start doing drinks again <laughs> nice uh this one more seems like a general one from bobcat for five dollars saying what are your thoughts about the frequency of underground cities in cultural memory and the Ag agartha myth agartha. Agartha. agartha the hollow earth civilization that lies beneath yeah. that supposedly you can enter through the north and south pole hollow earth Love it. Those, well, I, I, I can't think of a, a large number of those that pop up at all before the 19th century. Like, basically, mm. every story I've heard about Hollow Earth cropped up during the, like, romantic or later period. Yeah, and it's also one of those things where I think that having, you know, folklore of it, yeah, some of it could pertain to, like, people who lived in caves and things, but I also think that it's one of those things where it's like talking about people that came from the sky or people that came from the sea. It's just our romanticization of, you know, places that we can't access. You know, it's like, what's beneath your feet? I don't know. Maybe people live down there. What's in the sky? I don't know. It's probably God. What's in the, you know, ocean? <laughs> it's mermaids. Like, you know, you can kind of right. point to anything you don't know and just be like, yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. So. Um see uh are you looking for the the 
Not who just asked. Yeah, I was definitely going to do that, but I figured I'd ask a question in the meantime. Uh, let's see what we got. Uh, uh, Daniel, if you, if you want to send it again as a regular chat. Oh, wait, there it is. Daniel, oh, I have it here. Oh, okay. Uh, Daniel Wheeler for $5 saying, Exodus 5, 6 through 20. Apparently two cities named Ramses 1 and 2 show bricks with a with and without straw, respectively. Bible proven, LOL, thoughts on this? Uh, I'm... I'm not sure. I I haven't really thought about the inclusion of straw as being significant. Mm. Um, and also, I don't believe it's Ramses 1 and 2. I think you're talking about Pithom and uh, Pi Ramses, which are two separate cities. Um, it, would, it would also, mm. it could theoretically make sense that one be different materials as well due to changes in elevation, uh, proximity to the river. You know, there's, there's a number of factors. I don't um i don't know about the straw aspect though i i wouldn't i wouldn't know what to tell you yeah i mean that's the only thing i can think of is just an improved quality of construction materials yeah. but you know mm. sorry uh, that's not a very you know significant answer <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but an answer nonetheless <laughs> yes uh problematic farmer for ten dollars saying supporting the boys my mom says hello to milo oh hello problematic farmer's mom nice to meet you uh operator unknown for two dollars said any redacted croc oh good no 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 <laughs> no <laughs> do not finish reading that the youtube oh, censors shit. will come for us the mystery chat i'll <laughs> i'll tell you what it said later yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay um i know what it is now that i've finished reading it yeah whatever the... yeah uh that's why, why i do this now <laughs> um Let's see. Uh, Pumpkin Bear for one ninety nine said, "Volume four of Marble Hornets confirmed." Does that have uh, context for either of you? Um, Marble Hornets. I I'm not sure when it came in, so I'm not sure what it was in reference to. Marble Hornets was a uh, web series, uh, a, an analog horror series from like two thousand eleven. I want to say like early, early, Damn. like yeah, YouTube. Um, might even, it might be two thousand nine. Hmm um very interesting series it's it's a lot of fun to watch all the way through um i did it on stream a few times uh but you know just very very creepy like came out of the whole slender man craze oh yeah yeah so very very good horror series uh doesn't do a ton to actually like jump scare you but it, it makes you feel uneasy all the way through and there's like 80 mm, some episodes mm. they range from like two and a half minutes to like 18 minutes mm. Uh, Christmas loving engineer for twenty dollars said, "Going on vacation in Appalachia next month. Best case, I get a good vacation. Worst case, y'all get another missing four one one." Well, try not to go missing, Christmas loving engineer. Um, we'd rather not add to the catalog. Yeah, let's, uh, let's avoid that at all. That said, we were uh, we were down there in November. And it is beautiful. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Beautiful land. At least in the Tennessee. I mean, yeah, I... we were in the Smokies. Yep. Okay. Uh, let's see. Agamemnon's gym bag for $7 and 48 cents. Uh, early on saying too captivated to come up with silly things to make you read. Here's my money. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks Agamemnon. <laughs> uh, creative early for 499 saying been here a while. Wanted to correct an offhand comment from last stream. I have epilepsy and it is not a sleep disorder. Other than that, keep it up. Oh, I think I saw your email. I, I believe what I meant to say was narcolepsy and other sleep disorders. Uh, and I ended up saying epilepsy. Um, 
I make mistakes. It happens. Freudian slip. <laughs> Never make a mistake again. How, yeah, exactly. <laughs> How dare I? Uh, but yeah, that that was a that was a mistake on my part. Um, probably due to the fact that I was exhausted. <laughs> the digital footprint means that we're not allowed to mess up. The digital what? Footprint. The, you said footprint. Did I? Yeah, you did. Well, it's you know, words are hard. You messed up. <laughs> exactly. Canceled. Case and point. See you guys. <laughs> fired <laughs> he gets fired once a week at this point generally yeah yeah fired on stream get fired. Yep. get wrecked son <laughs> uh, and lg noises and yeah, exactly. oh, just hit markers on my face every time i say a word wrong <laughs> uh ria chu white for two nine or sorry 299 20 dollars hit marker uh my husband and I love y'all's content. We've been following from the start. My husband was curious about how to apply to be a ranger for the Lore Lodge when it actually happens. He has a law enforcement and wilderness experience. Whew, uh, we will we will post the if we ever get to the point where we have the money to hire rangers. Yeah, if we ever even have an actual physical lodge and are capable of doing yeah. that, we'll let you know. Yeah, there will be a post. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, but that's that's probably a long way off. Yep. But hopefully, got a lot of money to uh, to make before we invest in that. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we need our own homes first. Yeah. Currently, we live in apartments. <laughs> yeah, yes. that's a good start. Yeah, yeah. right. Like uh, Dylan Mod performed an event. Said, "Hey guys, first stream, first time watching the stream at work. Uh, you guys have gotten me through my job at a ski resort in the Poconos. Is it Elk? Out. Yeah, which which is it? Because we're not far from there. Yo, yeah, Elk is kind my of my dad grew up to. teaching at Elk Mountain. Yeah. Oh, really? That's where yeah. I went snowboarding yeah. for the first time. Yeah, and made it down really? the mountain exactly once. <laughs> yep. Son of a bitch! I'll need to tell him. Yeah, <laughs> I messed up my knee pretty bad. Yeah, I, I grew nice. up going to Elk Mountain with my family and family friends, and so we went up as a group, and uh, we tried to rent stuff for for him and and some of the other members of the group, and of course they were out of helmets when we got there. Perfect. So he best I, thing to be out of exactly. Right. So he and I had to share one, and so I was supposed to try and teach him to snowboard, but because I had to give him my helmets, he went up with someone else, and uh, yeah, by the time he came back after one run, he was like, I'm done for the day, and I was like, well, my uh, My knee was not working yeah. properly at that yeah. point. Ooh, yeah, that would do it. Uh, Yo Laskin for 199 said, Milo, are there any cryptids you want to be found? Oh, Bigfoot. <laughs> Hands down. Bigfoot's fucking awesome. I think I think Bigfoot and the Yeti are the two that have the most potential biological evidence for of like the big ones. Yeah. Uh, because you know they're they're the, the big one that I've heard a lot when talking about the Yeti and whatnot is it's close enough to you know in in Asia it's close enough to uh, you know great apes and whatnot yeah. that there could be a species of great ape that has evolved to live at these higher altitudes. Um, similar to uh, you know the Yeti or the Sasquatch in North America, where you know there has been uh, you know, we're finding some evidence that there could have been some sort of hominid presence in North America before um, Homo sapiens made it here. So is it possible oh, I know. that there could be something, um, you know, um, now, if there was one that regardless of whether or not there's evidence, just like my personal favorite sort of cryptid, Jackalope, Jackalope <laughs> is the best cryptid. There is absolutely no argument about that. Fucking Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's I, what I was going to say when he was looking at me for was when we were doing the research for Roanoke. And I have done zero research into this past reading the the book that was written by mm -hmm. William Strachey in 1612. He says, just on page 26, casually, that the the natives of the, uh, the Chesapeake, Jamestown region specifically, um, 
that they hunt apes in the mountains. Which Bruh. is a weird thing <laughs> to have in a book from 1612. Yeah, considering that's Considering there have weird. not been primates in North America for 26 million years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one person suggested oh. to me that apes was how they referred to less civilized natives, uh, mm. which, and that it was just lost in translation. Um, but the thing about that is that up in Vancouver, in British Columbia, a little bit to the east of that, uh, the Chehalis people talk about uh, the Saskets, which is where we get the term Sasquatch. And the way they describe them are as slightly larger, like six foot six to seven foot human beings with broader shoulders, more uh, you know muscle mass in their upper body, who live out in the forests in caves and mountains. Um, so I just found that fascinating. Like, you know, That's maybe, maybe Bigfoot is not... Maybe we're looking for the wrong thing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, and it could be one of those things where, like, if it was, like, an evolutionary holdout that made it, like, I wouldn't be shocked if at this point it is something that is extinct, but it has yeah. just existed in our cultural memory, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to this point. And, and so it's an interesting one, you know, as funny as it is to watch those Bigfoot shows where it's just a bunch of, like, you know, drunk dudes running around in the woods with guns right. is, like, that's awesome. But also, like, from a, like, purely, like, anthropological and like mm -hmm. evolutionary perspective like there could be something to be said for both the yeti and the sasquatch because they are like you know things that are related to or could yeah. be related to extant great apes so mm -hmm. nice interesting uh got a couple of new ones here uh let's see oh boy what yeah. time is it yeah let's uh let's take one more and then and then wrap okay. up here uh let's see uh somebody said the jackalope was originated in wyoming um makes sense i would say oh, we can read that one later yeah um uh, what about on, on the list uh they're all they're all kind of also relatively wrong. somebody did ask when the next weird bible is oh uh last tuesday of every month yep mm. uh and then this Decent one. Uh, Aiden Pack of 499 said, Hey boys, PNW Aiden here. Have you ever heard of any lore from old western mining towns? Not that springs to mind. The one that does, uh, you know, strike me isn't quite uh, western. It's it's oh. southeastern, or yeah, uh, southeastern, southern Alaska. Um, the town of Portlock, which was a mining and canning town, uh, mining and fishing town. Um, it, I think it was primarily a cannery. Oh, uh, I'm familiar with yeah. this one. Yeah, I, it was I know Portlock. Yeah. abandoned in, I want to say, the 1910s, um, the early 1900s. It was abandoned, and a lot of the stories were about people going missing and then their body parts turning up in the bay were, uh, you know, people having like very large objects. There we go. So, yeah, Portlock is the one that comes to mind, probably because it's it's the best documented um and it's it's the one that i would probably be the most interested in getting to the bottom of at the at the moment yeah I, i'm not familiar with uh too many there's one i can't remember the name of the creature it's like the Nomgog or something like that it's like a uh it, it originated in logging camps in the u.s and it was like uh some really tall uh hippopotamus looking creature with like a really long flat mm -hmm. mouth and no knees and it would just walk with its legs like this Weird. um and I, it was one of those like you know, uh, the, the fearsome beast tales yep. that they would tell to sort of haze, haze the newcomers, critters. you know. One person is like, I've heard this thing in the woods, and then someone else is like, yeah, well, I also heard that thing in the woods, and before you know it, this poor guy is, you know, absolutely shitting himself. Um, but, you know, they're, they're fun. I'm sure there's half a million that have been lost, yeah. which is another piece that I think would be really interesting to know. 
Yeah, there's uh, like the hide behind is one of those. Uh, the squonk comes out of the, the same thing. The squonk is Pennsylvania's state cryptid. It uh is a uh capybara looking creature that lives out in the woods and um is so ugly and self conscious about its ugliness that if you even look at it, it melts into a pile of tears. Oh, that's actually so really sad. sad. Um, Fuck. Oh my yeah. god, <laughs> that's that's great. Yeah. So, uh, all right. Well, you know, uh, all that said, I think we had a, this was a pretty great show. I had a good time. Um, this was this was a yeah. great one. Uh, Milo, is there anything you want to plug to people who might be watching this that aren't watching you? Well, for anyone who's interested in, uh, you know, what I have to say about Ancient Apocalypse, uh, episode three, the second to last episode uh, of my review will be coming out uh, this upcoming week, um, where I will be talking about uh, Gebekli Tepe, um, and I believe some other sites in Turkey. Um, so if you're at all interested in hearing what I have to say about Graham Hancock's opinions on Gebekli Tepe, you are more than welcome to check that out. Uh, otherwise, uh, Aiden, Aiden, it's been great having uh, you guys having me on. Thank you so much uh, for having me here. Uh, it was a blast, you know, so uh, I guess that's uh, that's pretty much all I got. So thanks so much right. for everyone for tuning in. Yeah. Well, thank you, everybody, for uh, for stopping by, hanging out with us. If you have not yet, check out uh, the Lore Lodge's Coffee, Not Pocono Perk from uh, Tableau Roasting Company. That link is in the description, as are a few others. Uh, if you want to check us out, and if you are the type who prefers to listen to your podcasts via audio, we also have all of these on Spotify, Apple, all that, and they usually go up the Tuesday afterwards. Correct. Um, so you can follow us over there as well. And we'll have, if you haven't seen the Roanoke video, uh, go check that out, by the way. That was a fun one. It's 80 minutes long. You will have a good time. Um, but that's it. <laughs> thank you guys so much, and we'll see you on the next one. Bye, guys.